Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, or guten tag, or whatever language, whatever country, whatever region, whatever continent on this rotating globe, which we reach every night on the weekends at this time, on the other side of midnight. That really magical time when, when we look at this stuff that, you know, you used to say, oh, come on, give me a break, and you got to take a second look. Now, what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes is connected directly to what my guest tonight, uh, Neil Adams, is going to be talking about. And I can't wait to get to Neil. I've been trying to get Neil on this show for years, literally years. And a few weeks ago, he picked up the – no, he didn't pick up the phone. He picked up his email. And he sent me an email. He says, I'd like to be on your show. So that's what we're doing. Let me, let me start with a bizarre story. And for that, you're going to have to go to the other side of midnight.com. And click on uh, the the graphic that Kinti has prepared for Neil's show tonight. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down to Radio with Pictures under that, you know, my items. Look at this story. A small, like maybe a Fiat or something, in Los Angeles, where there are basically no hills, somehow launched itself into a second-story window of an apartment house with a dental office for rent down below. And it's stuck there, and it's like no one can figure – the two people in the car, they they survived. So we're going to get you know from the pilot uh, exactly what he did or did not do. But, I mean, this is a bizarre story. Now, let me give you a bizarre potential explanation because I don't think this is, this is normal. I don't think this is natural. This definitely is anomalous because – Normally, when people you know lose control and they run into a house or apartment house, it's at the same you know gravitational level. It's at street level. It's at road level. Um, we have a friend in um, um, Kentucky who has a farm by the side of the road, and some stupid idiot in a truck lost control, went through the farm, went through the fence, went through the house, and destroyed his servers. Anyway, bizarre, bizarre story. Um, these people, we're going to get a blow-by-blow, blow, hopefully, of what happened, but let me give you a bizarre theory. I don't think anything – I don't think the driver was at fault. I mean, he wasn't on a high hill speeding along at 100 miles an hour, launching himself into space over a cliff and sailing down, you know, like one of these Bond films. No, it wasn't Bond. It was um, it was one of the um, – uh, one of the uh, – I forget, you know, the the movie clone. But anyway, you know, where, where you see these gorgeous – Films of cars launching themselves into space and crashing into buildings. It wasn't that. I think we're dealing with a literal gravitational or inertial anomaly. And if that sounds really bizarre, think of uh, what um, Gordon White and I were discussing last night. Uh, uh, Charles Fort, 
the, his book, The Book of the Damned, which is an incredible recitation from mainstream media all over the world, which was papers back then, newspapers, uh, of anomalies occurring in all shape, manner, and sizes all over the planet in the um, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Pose, as the physics changes, gravity is not constant uniformly around the planet. Suppose there are, I don't know, let's call them bubbles in gravity or vortices or whirlpools or some regions on the planet where momentarily, until you know the ether changes, the gravitational constant is no longer what it is normally. And a car moving along at good speed, if it hits a little bump, and it's literally in a gravitational null and it only weighs, you know, a few pounds as opposed to 2,000. It can launch at those speeds itself into the air and plow into a building. So that leads us to tonight's topic. Uh, let me go over and uh, make sure I have connections open. Opening hailing frequencies. My guest tonight, I mean, I really wanted to talk to Neil about this and a whole bunch of other stuff for a very long time. And as I read you his bio, which is on the other side of midnight.com, just go to his page and scroll down to the bottom, and there it is. Um, I mean, his bio is so interesting over and above what we're going to talk about tonight that this is going to be this is going to be an interesting uh, uh, conversation, guaranteed. Let me read you some quotes. He, talking Neil Adams now, revive Batman, save the X-Men, challenge the system, and change comics forever. That's from Wired Magazine. Or describe him in one word, genius. That's from the editor-in-chief at Marvel Comics. Another one, Adams transformed Batman into the sleek, brooding, dark knight depicted on screen for the past two decades. That's from Brian Lowry at Variety. Here's one. Who is the greatest living comic book artist? As I've said before, my vote is for Neil Adams. That's Jeff Bauscher at the L.A. Times. Well, oh, here, here's a, one I got I to tell you, because this is from Harlan Ellison, my old friend and nemesis, Harlan Ellison. He's a pivotal figure in the world of comics. He has positively altered the state, the ethical structure of the industry, and always for the better. That's Harlan's random comment. And to get comments like that from Harlan, you've got to be at the top drawer. So let me, let me do something more formal here. Neil Adams is a towering figure in the world of comic book creation and art. He has held legendary runs on Batman, X-Man, Green Lantern, um, Green Arrow, and Dead Man. Adams rescued Batman from the campy nostalgia of the television show, oh, thank God, and refitted him in his present incarnation as an Avenger of the Night. When people say modern Batman, they mean Neil Adams' Batman. His run on Batman led directly... I mean directly to the new, more realistic incarnation in Batman Returns movie, which featured the character he created, Ra's al Ghul. Crusade and comic book artist writer is hardly the group of words you would expect to hear in one phrase. Neil Adams' name usually follows such headlines as Battles DC Comics and Warner Communications for recognition and settlement for Superman creators Jerry Spiegel and Joe Schuster. Uh, Siegel, not Spiegel. And relevant comic books take the stage, or overpopulation, drug addiction, bringing down the comic code, company towns, railroading judges, are grist for Adam's Mill. 
His first black comic book superhero created by Adams in an uphill fight to gain recognition for minorities in comic books in America has become featured player in the Justice League Saturday morning cartoon show. In his copious spare time, Adams has convinced publishers to return original art to its creators, huge, improve the standards of comic book production, also huge, force comic book publishers to pay royalties to its creators. Oh, what a nice idea. All this while crusading ceaselessly against the work made for higher provision in the copyright law. A provision in the 1978 book blames copyright law that in two sentences strips creators as creators, reporters, actors, scriptwriters, and feature writers of their rights. In addition to his comic book genius, and we're going to get back to that word in a moment, Neil has launched a highly successful production company, Continuity Productions, which produces the popular Nazanex B campaign. Neil is also responsible for the design of the populator Terminator T24 slash D-Ride and the Spider-Man rides at Universal Studios. His hobbies, theoretical physics and comparative religions, an uncommon man in a popular culture world, and may I say, an eminent citizen scientist. Neil, welcome to the other side of Midnight. I didn't know we were talking about uh, comic books tonight, but uh, that'll be fine. <laughs> well, someone sent me that, so obviously that's your, you know, this is your life, but... <clears throat> my my what, metier, what, what, as they say. <laughs> what's really interesting to me is you are the personification of the so-called Renaissance man. You well, are a generalist. Well, let me say this. Um, most scientists actually are um, uh, beholden to whomever hires them or beholden to the institute that takes care of them or the uh, college that hires them or where they hit tenure or whatever. I am not. Um, fortunately for me, I have a career, and I, my career has been a good career, and my career has paid me. I've had some battles along the way with people who are stupid. Um, uh, and generally won the battles only because they don't do their research and I do. So they lose and I win, but I win for everybody. The, the, the thing about it is that I don't owe anybody anything. Um, I can study science and I have studied science for well over 50 years. I have studied all areas of science because not because it's my hobby, but because it's what I love to do as well as I may love to do art or study theoretical, uh, uh, excuse me, study comparative religions from the point of view of history, which I do as well. So from my point of view, I'm free to do the science uh, without uh, interference or without uh, people telling me I'm going to lose my job. Hmm. Unfortunately, an awful lot of people in the industry, uh, let's say the industry of science, cannot say the things uh, that they want to say cannot pro- propose the things they want to propose because, in fact, they're likely to get fired. Uh, they're likely to lose tenure. They're li- likely to use the- lose their friends. I don't have any friends in the science <laughs> care care about losing. He said that with a straight face, folks. I I did. I just don't feel uh, compelled to to listen to all these things that uh, people have to say. Uh, because it's part of uh, the way things uh, have come down. So there are people like Samuel Warren Carey, uh, who may have been shamed in his lifetime, who have said some things uh, that 
very much makes sense. When I say makes sense, it's or they make common sense. Mm. And the things that Samuel Carey has said, uh, rather than me studying them, I just looked at them objectively from the point of view of being a, a studying scientist and being an artist too, because you can see things as an artist that other people can't see. For example, you can see three-dimensionally. If mm. somebody said to me, well, what does seeing three-dimensionally mean to you? What the, what's the significance of it? I would say, you know, I can see <laughs> because of what I do, I can see that all the continents of the earth fit together practically perfectly on a smaller globe. Now, you can't do that. Most people can't do that, but I can do it. Now, it's not magic. Uh, it's really study. If you study things, you can see that they go together. Uh, you can see it from a distance. Now, you can then cut out the pieces and then put them together and, and discover that you're correct, which some people have done. Some very few people, no geologists, as it turns out, have done it. I got no idea. What did this guy Wegner then do? The, you know, raised all the flags about so called continental drift. Wegner? Well, Wegner made made the um, very logical assumption that that the continents seem to fit together, hmm. and therefore the logic is that they once did fit together. And being a logical, sensible person, and not having something very odd thrown at him, like maybe the Earth is growing, because that does seem totally insane. <clears throat> he said, well. Maybe all the continents fit together on one side of the globe. Now, very, very sensibly, he said that because if you look at the Atlantic, I did when I was a 10 year old kid, you look at the Atlantic and you look at North America and South America and Europe and, and Africa, they look like they fit together. That's they, exactly they look what like they fit together. Yeah. They look like they fit together so simply that you go, of course, that's, but of course, then some adult will say to you, no, that's stupid. But to a kid, they just fit together. It's like puzzle pieces that somebody hasn't shoved. Mm -hmm. Wegner took that assumption, not being totally affected by people. Then he started to, to investigate animals and vegetables or uh, flora and fauna or all these things and discovered mm -hmm. that, you know what? These things were connected at one point in time because these are the same animals and vegetables that live on either side of these uh, of these oh. broken apart continents. And now discovered that in fact, between. without the Atlantic Ocean in between. Now, he logically would not say the Pacific Ocean opened as well. Why? Because he was an American. He was like an American European because, after all, where do we study science? We study science in America and in Europe. We don't study science in Hawaii. We don't study science in Japan. Those are those alien creatures in Japan. They don't know what they're doing. Don't tell that to look the at, folks at the University of Hawaii. I was joking. They've been under a real They've been under a major threat lately. So, Neil, I, I, I would not joke about that with, with Hawaiians right well, now. Well, you know, yes. I would say I would say that uh, the joke is that the American Europeans ver listen very little to the Japanese, the Chinese, the Australians, okay. and they don't pay attention. Samuel Warren Carey, being an Australian, mm. said, "You know what? Uh, in spite of the fact that you know it does seem as though the continents were together, because you know they did discover that all the continents were together, quote in the Atlantic, because they would do things like they would." 
uh, take a uh, transatlantic cable and they'd uh, ride it across the ocean, discover every couple of weeks or so, it it would fry in the middle and melt and they'd have to go down and replace it. Well, because it fried, because there's a rift down there and your cable is run along the across the rift and the rift keeps on spreading and so it melts your cable. So they kept, what the hell is going on? I don't understand what's going on down there. So there's lava. There was inadvertent discovery of lava coming up in the middle of the uh, bottom of the Atlantic. Yes, or at a rift that mm-hmm. the Atlantic was splitting in half and, and, and dividing. So the logic, once they discovered that, then they started to look further into Wegener's stuff. They discovered, oh, this guy, Wegener, this crazy, kooky guy, is right. Guess mm-hmm. what? All the continents were together in the Atlantic, and therefore Wegener is right. Now, it didn't occur to him or them, but it did occur to Sam Carey to say, well, <laughs> Pardon me, guys. Let this hold on a second. You're Americans and Europeans, and you know you think these things, you know. And I think that's very cool. But what about the Pacific? In other words, aren't there rifts in the Pacific? And isn't the age of the Pacific Ocean the same as the ages of the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. from 180 million years ago to today? The ocean isn't older. There's no part. In fact, of the Pacific, there's in fact no part of any ocean on Earth that's older than 180 million years old. So oh, why wow. are the ages of the Pacific the same as the ages of the Atlantic? And when I say that, I mean from today to up to the past, 180 million years ago. Why aren't there areas of the Pacific Ocean that are 350 million years old, or 780 million? Or well, couldn't be a billion because. You see, the geologists have come up with another theory. And let me just tell you the geology theory, the theory of geology, so you understand what essentially, not the theory of geology, the Pangea theory. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to try not to laugh. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Geologists. I don't promise. I don't promise. These geologists say that there have been various times when the continents have come together. Last time. Go ahead. See, I was not supposed to have my phone go, but you got your phone going. Uh-huh. Uh, no, someone's calling that should not be calling. Ah, let me. Actually, I have to. I have to get rid of the. Probably battery. somebody yelling at everything I say. <laughs> when we started this show a long time ago, um, we had situations where people would call just to kind of mess with our uh, minds. Uh, so, anyway, anyway, moving on. So. Uh, Geologists have a thing called the Pangea theory, and the Pangea goes something. Pangea theory goes something like this: something like um, a billion years ago, or whatever, a, a given of time. All the continents that we see on the Earth today were together in the Pacific. In other words, there was another island in the Pacific. Okay, in the middle of the Pacific. And mm-hmm. all the continents were together there, and the rest of the Earth, the Atlantic, and all the where our continents are for the most part, was water world. And so, what happened? So about you basically had this huge. Hang on, hang on. You basically had this yeah. huge continent-sized island right. in the middle, no, one no, side of the planet. All the continents. All the continents. All the continents. That, that's what I mean. All the current continents all form the, one huge super island. One exactly. So this was in the Pacific. So about seven hundred. They get they they speculate that uh, twelve hundred million years uh, no ten hundred million years let's say okay we'll say seven hundred million years okay now it's seven hundred million years now seven hundred million years ago this island broke apart in pieces mm-hmm. and these pieces 
rode around the earth like your hand sliding over a ball to the other side of the earth and joined up again into an island in the Atlantic. Oh, my. And so they – oh, yeah. And they joined <laughs> in the Atlantic magically and became Pangaea. Okay. Now they stayed that way for something like 350 million years. Why did they stay that way? I don't know. Tectonics says that rifting is going on all the time, but for some reason, all those continents rode halfway around the Earth and joined up again at a Star Trek convention in the Atlantic. (laughs) Or Comic-Con. And they all joined together, you know, without making any seams or anything like that. You know, you didn't have any basaltic sutures or anything like that. They just kind of magically joined together. Neil, we've been living with the, this idea called uniformitarianism up until relatively recently, which is the geologists from the 19th century, 18th century on basically looked at the world and they said, well, this has gone on and gone on and gone on. And if you have people trying to talk about catastrophes like Noah's Ark, like floods, like huge major discontinuities, they're, they're mm-hmm. not right because it's basically geological processes go on and on and on at the same rate forever. But what they then okay. magically proposed yeah. now suddenly, is two now, events now in time that. that are catastrophic because then you have a huge island with a whole bunch of ocean on the world. Then the island breaks apart. All the pieces skitter over to the other side of the planet. Now you have an ocean world with the, with the new continent on the, on the other side, the right-hand side. And, and hundreds of billions of years in between, and they stay that way for until they suddenly decide to break up and then become the planet. So, right. so again, they have violated well, their look, own. Look, I told concept, you I wasn't going to laugh. I told you I wasn't going to laugh. Okay, mm-hmm. but assuming that this process goes process goes on, why did they stay together once they got together? Why didn't they just bounce yeah. off each other and this right. process? No, no, because. Geology's job is to make one, make up one excuse after another after they see the inconsistencies, which is what happens when something is wrong. When something is wrong, what you do is you make up all these things to explain how wrong it is, and you hope that nobody will look at it and, and say, that is such BS. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're making one rule, and now you're making another rule, and now you're making another rule. Mm-hmm. Well, please, you can't make up your mind. Yeah, in science, I'm sorry. Why this, is it saying – why is it all staying together for 300 million years? And then suddenly it decides to break in half. And okay, those in science, decide to spread. Go ahead. In science, this is called adding ad hoc hypotheses. Or yeah. in the astronomical world, back to Ptolemy yeah. – we're talking epicycles, Neil. Anyway, you got to let me finish my fairy tale. Go for it. Got to let me finish my fairy tale. So for about 300 million years, they all stay together, okay? And then suddenly they break in half. Now, they don't break in half the way they did back in Rodinia, which was that first island in the Pacific. They break in half top and bottom. Half of it goes to the North Pole. Half of it goes to the South Pole. Now, the half that goes to the South Pole goes all the way over the South Pole before it breaks up and deposits Antarctica at the South Pole. So it doesn't just go down. It goes to the South Pole all the way under, and then three continents break off of that. And up above the upper, above the upper area, that upper, upper continent breaks apart into North America and Asia. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting? There's so many things that are interesting about this because, of course, you know this is what they're saying, and then they, they describe it and they give you the description. You kind of go, okay, it looks like a square dance to me. I don't understand what is going on, but what is then the result of that? Well, after that, the uh, Antarctica is left in the South Pole. Uh, South America and Australia and um, and uh, and what, I missed the continent there. South America and Australia, India, start to ride in Africa. Okay, start to ride up, and now they're on their way to collide with the northern continents. Hmm. Okay, that's okay. That's hmm. the, that's what's going to happen if you just pay attention to us in class when we're wearing our white coats. So that's that's what's going to happen. Now, if such a thing happens, okay. Just this is for any geologists that are listening in. Okay, if such a thing were to happen, now we've watched it happen. Okay, it's broken at one big giant island. Okay, without any basaltic sutures or anything like that, has now broken in half. Half has gone to the top. Half has gone to the bottom, or more than half. Then it broke apart into four continents at the bottom, two continents at, at the top, and now they're riding back together. Okay, and amazingly. The North American continent rides together toward the South American continent, and they meet in Central America at a, at a bridge that is so narrow that you barely see it on your map. And they magically come together, even though they've been traveling north and to the left and to the right, they magically come together in Central America. They not only magically come together in Central America – they also come together in the Suez Canal area, magically the north sliding together with the south at exactly the same place they broke apart. After flying <laughs> all over the place, they magically come back together, coincidentally. Well, that's the key, isn't it? Isn't, I, isn't, that, a, key isn't that a major clue? That's one more thing. It's a stupid all of these things are stupid. There's so many things about this that are stupid that it's unbelievable. You cannot – how many how, – okay. So how you come, Neil, once you how, start how come, how come, these things – How come, Neil, right, this theory you, that has persisted is taking control it's of geology because nobody, okay, for 50 it's years? Easy. It's very easy. Nobody wants the next step, okay, because the next step seems more insane. Mm-hmm. If the next step seems more insane, even though it may be more logical, look at people. People say to me all the time, they write me letters. They say, there's so much proof on this. There's so many hundreds and thousands. No, there's hundreds of thousands of papers that say things that don't make any sense. But there's no proof. There's no facts. It is there are no facts to say that this is happening because there's no way to gather facts easily. So what you have to do is you have to do things like look at maps. You look at North America and South America, and you see Central America, and you see that little tiny point where apparently they came together, and somehow after riding all over the globe, they magically come together at the same point they broke apart. Same thing in the Suez Canal. They magically are coming together at the same point that they broke apart. Does this make any sense? No. How come all these bright people, Neil, how come all these bright people over 50 years, that's two or three generations of geologists – haven't been laughed out of, out of out of school. Well, Sam Carey. It's so absurd. Yeah, Sam Carey. Well, they will be, and when it happens, everybody's going to go, "Oh my God, these guys are laughing! What a stupid theory!" Why do you believe that people once believed that all the continents came together on one side of the Earth for a Star Trek convention, and then they broke apart? 
Do you believe that, that people actually believe that? That's what's going to happen in the future, but right now it's not happening. Why? Because the, the idea, the only way that this, what I'm telling you, it can happen, okay, is for the earth to get bigger or to grow. Sam Carey was the first one to write about this, and he wrote about it in two books, and he's an Australian because he's obviously the kind of guy who would go, I'm not an American, okay, let I'm me, not let, a German. Neil, Neil let, let me stop you there. I found that an awful lot of interesting radicals before Carey, including Darwin, Charles Darwin, toyed with this mm-hmm. idea. So sure. it was Carey who organized the new 1960s, right. you know, uh, Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory Corian and Carey, into an and actual Carey wrote defensible his, model. Yeah. He wrote he wrote his book, and he because he's a great geologist. I'm not look. Yes. I don't. Yes. I'm not a great geologist. Sam Carey's a great geologist. He's, uh, uh, he's a, an emeritus professor of geology in the Tasmanian co- uh, College. I mean, the guy's a genius. Okay, from a point of geology, but he's not a physicist. Okay, so he wrote a book called The Expanding Earth. If he were a physicist, he would never say the expanding Earth because nothing expands in science, with the exception, of course, of the universe, which is another stupid thing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you've got to hold it. Hey, hold it there because we're at the uh, top and the bottom. I'll get my tops and bottoms. I'm, I'm, I'm in two different hemispheres. Uh, Mm -hmm. We'll we'll come back to my guest this morning in a few minutes here. But we have to do a couple things at the break, so everybody kind of stay where you are. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. I want to bring on, uh, while we have a moment here, Chris Bell, who is the guy – Chris, are you there? Who is, I'm here. Who is the guy who has revolutionized the other side of midnight because he's given us what we have always wanted, which was a podcast. So would you please go through the steps for how the Club 19.5 membership, who are the only folks who are going to get this incredible service, courtesy of Chris, uh, can get access to the podcast? And then I think Kintia – has a couple of things she wants to update you on. Chris? Hello. Yes, um, this is very easy. Just go to the other side of midnight.com and log in to Club 19.5. And at the bottom of the page underneath the archive list, you'll see your um, links to the podcast page. So just go to the podcast page and follow the directions there. It'll lead you to some apps if you don't know what app to use or if you don't have a favorite podcast app. And your personal link is on the podcast page. You do have to be logged in to see it. But once you get logged in, go to the um, archive page. You will see the link to it, and it's right there. And you don't. You can use any podcast app you want. If we have some suggestions on the page, but that's just a suggestion. Any podcast app. Super, super. Kintia, anything you want to add? Yes, uh, first of all, before I add what I want to add, Chris, I would like, uh, if you would just share with us why you stepped stepped up to volunteer to help us with this, I think it would be enlightening for other listeners. Uh, well, I, I like podcasts myself, and I love the show, 
And unfortunately, I was on the East Coast and I can't stay up to 3 a.m. So it's, it's the podcast is very important to me to be able to download and listen to it. And I just really want to help you guys out. Um, and I know all the other listeners like the podcast because I remembered when we got one um, a good while back. It was very exciting. And I, I just really glad that I can help. So I just want to underline here to all of our listeners out there that this is a show that really is, we're here to serve you. And at the same time, we're also a team. And I highly encourage you to reach out to us if there's something you'd like to volunteer to help with to keep this show going. Or um, you reach out to me and I can tell you some specifics we need to, to uh, work on the show. I really welcome that. And the other thing that I'd like to mention is that to make things easier for new members who've just joined, I've created a page where we're beginning to list benefits as they occur so that I'm not answering an email every couple of days, you know, <laughs> what happened to part one or part two. So when you're logging in in the, the login page, there is also a link there for members benefits and if you're logged in you'll be able to see and if you aren't you'll be encouraged to log in so you can see and with that i thank you all for your support you help keep this show going and it's so important without you we won't make it so thank you very much and i turn this shit back to you (laughs) okay thank you guys Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Neil Adams, who is a preeminent, eminent person in so many areas that are part of popular culture. It's really gratifying to see that we're returning to the idea of Renaissance men, Renaissance people, because uh, Neil's avocation, as apart from his you know, um, career, has really focused on this alternative geology and physics of the planet – and I got to tell you, I still wonder how all those bull cannot see this data, starting with the simple, simple model you laid out and go, it doesn't work. Well, Neil? The, look at when I first uh, when I first ran across this myself, you know, uh, I was a young man, but I but I, I thought it was stupid, too. I mean, the idea that the earth is growing just doesn't make any sense. I mean, because, you know, we keep on discovering new things like doesn't the uh, sun go around the earth because we live in a world where every morning the sun comes up and every night the sun goes down and clearly it goes around the earth because the moon and the vault of the sky go around the earth so the sun must be attached to it therefore the sun goes around the earth well it took a lot to discover in fact it took 1500 years to discover that that wasn't the way it was these radical um, impressions uh, that you may or may not have especially if they're as radical as this, become very, very hard to accept in the face of so many people assuming that they know what they're talking about and they're telling you because they wear the white coats. Unfortunately, this, uh, this Pangea theory is, is the biggest nonsense I've ever heard of in my life, but I had to come to that conclusion 
many, many times. I didn't, I didn't accept this. I mean, when I heard about Sam Carey's expanding earth, I thought, what the hell is he talking about? Things don't expand. On the other hand, it didn't occur to me that he was a geologist and he wouldn't speak in physics terms. You can't say something is expanding because things don't expand without an outside force acting on them. And certainly a planet wouldn't expand to five times its volume or mass over 180 million years. Well, what let, kind of Leon, science let, would let, accept let, that? Let, let me stop you there, because when I read Carrie's book, which is an incredibly de- – I mean you really got to love this stuff to get into Carrie's book. But toward the end of that book, he does mention that the only way this would make sense – is if somehow inside the earth mass was being created mm-hmm. and the earth was being be pushed outward at surface yes. like you were filling a balloon with air. Well, I mean, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about that book. I, let me okay. tell you something about the book. I didn't read it. I made it my business when I was, this, when I was going into this to, to say to myself, look, this guy's come up with this theory that the earth is getting bigger. If I read the book, I'm going to be influenced into thinking that he's probably right because clearly he's making a lot of sense. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to investigate it myself from every point of view and then to see in the end if my conclusions are the same as Sam Carey's. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, they are. In fact, there are certain independent uh, researchers uh, in Germany and other places that have come to the same conclusions. They look at the same maps. They put them together the same way. Now, to make that next jump, okay, you have to study physics. There's just no way around it. Now, since I was a young man at the time, I was perfectly willing to do it. I assumed that if I could study this, I could find the mechanism that would have to happen that would create the new matter in the earth. I figured, well, you know, I'll study it for three years and I'll figure it all out and I'll write a book on it. No, it took me 30 years. Hmm. And I did discover it, and it took me 30 solid years, okay? That doesn't necessarily mean I've proved it to the world or shown it to the world except to explain it to the world, and I am constantly doing that and working on it. But understanding this, that we have a science in which somebody like Sam Carey is saying the earth is expanding, yet he cannot say that, so we can then replace the word expanding with with the word growth. Or growing then we can say let's take the expression growing and let's see if it matches the universe okay is the universe growing or is the universe expanding because based on the concept that nothing expands and we know that we know nothing expands unless you apply an outside force like heat for example that the universe is not heating up so it can't be expanding the universe. In not terms of, you mean in terms of pressure? It can't. You know, the, the two ways to get a balloon to expand. One is you increase the temperature, and the air gets hotter, and it expands it. The other is to add more air. Yes, you, but you have to add some other force. So, what force is being added to the universe to make it quote expand? In fact, science has this presupposition. If you ask, you can take any physicist off the street and say, "So, can things expand?" And he will say, "No." Then you'll say. What about the universe? And then he'll go quiet. Because it's the only <laughs> exception. It's the, it's the only exception to the rule. Let me see. Nothing expands. Nothing expands in the universe except, well, the, the universe. Really? That's the exception? I'm sorry. 
That doesn't make sense to me. You cannot say the universe has uh, an exception to a rule. One, of, doesn't one, of, my listeners, one of my listeners just, just wrote in. He says, I've been expanding since high school. That may be. And I love your <laughs> sense of humor. Get, get out of here. <laughs> We're trying to be serious here. Anyway, so if what Sam Carey says is correct and that the Earth is a microcosm of the universe – which anybody in physics will tell you is the case, then the universe is growing as well. Okay. Well, wait a second. Isn't that a better explanation of what's happening to the universe? Because we say, oh, golly, we say there was a big bang. Some, there was a something, nothing, what, whatever it was, a molecule, and it expand, exploded. No, we don't say exploded, mm-hmm. Mr. Adams. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You call it a big bang. Oh, they're even big better than bang that. They call it exploded. They, Neil, they're calling it now the inflation model. Oh, it's the inflation model. Now it's inflating mm-hmm. like a balloon. Yep, yep, yep. But see, this is a, <laughs> this is a philosophical conundrum. It? What's inflating it? The, What's inflating it? We don't know. Well, no, here's, here's know, a problem. I'm sorry. This is a really how do you, bad way to study science. How do you you're have saying, a You're saying it's inflating, huh? No, no. How do you have a universe which is expanding from new stuff coming into it? If the universe is the universe, it's as Peggy Lee said, that's all there is. How do you have a universe that's growing is a much simpler question. Because we have discovered dark matter. We have discovered dark matter. We have discovered that the universe is not empty. So if you convert dark matter into matter, mm-hmm. and when you convert dark matter into matter, you add gravity and electromagnetic energy, negative and positive energy, then you create a universe that because of these energies expands because you have negative and positive energies that push apart from each other. If you have a neutral universe that has particles – we won't go into that yet – that has particles that are neutral and do not express negative and positive energy, but express a neutral energy, they just sit there. But if you can apply energy to them and break the negative apart from the positive, it's called pair production, by the way, and it was discovered in 1932 by Carl David Anderson, you get pair production. Pair production, you create you say to a physicist, uh, sir, uh, can matter be created? Well, you have to describe your terms. Okay. Can matter be created? Is there a process of matter creation that we know of? Well, there is one. What's that? Well, that's it's called pair production. Oh, really? What happens? Well, a high-energy photon strikes something invisible. Something invisible? What is that? I don't know. Strikes something invisible and breaks it in half. Breaks it in half? I mean, two halves? Well, we don't know exactly how that happens. But what we get out of that is we get an electron and a positron. An electron and a positron, which are particles of matter. Hold on a second, sir. Hold on a second. Electrons are more than one-third of the particles of the universe. So you're telling me that we already know what creates more than one-third of the particles of the universe, pair production. Isn't that a clue? Isn't that a clue mm-hmm. to a logical mind that this is the path you should be following? 
You're telling me that in 1932, Carl Anderson first observed pair production and discovered that that's how you get electrons and positrons. And you said, well, they seem to annihilate each other. So are they, uh, you know what? Give up on that. Give up on that? I I'm thought sorry. Pair, Neil, Neil, I thought pair production was when, at like a gamma ray, very high energy electromagnetic uh, photon passes photon, passes right? near passes near a nucleus. No, it, no, 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 no. Passes near a nucleus means what to you if you, you study science? Passes the core of an near atom. a nucleus. Science. The core it of passes an atom. near. Okay, guess what? Okay, so I ran past a a, a corner of a building, and then what happened? The corner of the building gave me something while I went, I went by. If you well, pass by, if, I, if you if pass I, by, if I, uh, if I, nothing happens. If I'm, an, nothing if I'm in a spacecraft and I pass by the Earth close enough, my angle, my trajectory will be changed. My energy will be changed. Yes, but, I mean, exchange yes, of energy. But the Earth will the, not send a package of neutrons to you. No, but that's, nothing that's happens. because we're dealing with totally different phenomena with only one maybe commonality. Let me let me get let's to something. Let me make this let me let me make this clear before you go there. Okay. Okay. You can look it up. You can look it up on the internet, and you'll find definitions like that. But you know, you'll you go a little further, and then you'll discover that you can create pair production in space where there are no no neutrons. Okay. In space, empty space. There is no the fact that you may go buy a bunch of neutrons has nothing to do with pair production. Pair production. Well, this goes directly is, to my question. That nobody's talking about is pair production to, is made without knowing how it happens. They don't know. All right, they have no idea. Question. But but what you get from it is matter. Sam Carey, back in 1956, at this major conference in Australia, proposed his mm-hmm. expanding Earth theory. Right. Right. In the same time frame, yeah, of course, laughed at him. In the same time frame, half a planet away, two guys named Fred Hoyle and Herman Bondi were proposing Mm -hmm. something called the continuous creation of matter model to explain Mm -hmm. the expanding universe. I think Hoyle calculated one new hydrogen atom per cubic parsec, or some saints at a numbers. It was a tiny, 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 tiny amount of matter, but over billions of years, it made the expanding universe that we observed back then anyway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. From, from that, Carey got the idea, I think, that you could have matter creation just out of nothing in ordinary yes. space. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, let's say you're a geologist and you hear about an experiment like this and you go, aha, see, we should track that one down. But what Mm -hmm. you have to do is you actually have to study physics. And when you study physics, you then become, it then then becomes real to you because you see what happens. Okay, not, uh, gee, that looks, that's interesting. Maybe that's the answer. No, 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 no. Guess what? What you have to do, Sam, or whoever it is, and this is not a criticism of Sam because he was an older person. You go, you then go, and then study the physics of it and find out what happens. As it turns out, a high-energy photon strikes. It doesn't matter what it passes by. It can be in space. Strikes something invisible. You don't know what it is. Okay, you don't know what it is. And what you get out of it is you get an electron and a positron. Now, if we can just do a little back engineering here, okay, you start with a high-energy photon which is equal to the energy of the electron and the positron. In other words, that energy is split in half. Okay. And turned into their so-called rest mass. Not necessarily. Okay. Because it can't, you can't split 
a high energy photon in half and get matter, you can get uh, one half that energy, two halves of that energy, you can't get matter, except by pair production. So what happens is something is added to the electron and something is added to the positron that has nothing to do with the energy of the photon that begins. So we can, you can just examine them with me, okay? An electron mm-hmm. has half the energy of the, of the photon, but it also has a negative electromagnetic field, little tiny one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a positive. It has one-half field. The positron has one-half positive field, one-half positive field. So it's not only half the energy, but somehow magically it picked up one-half positive field. Okay. Okay. So, so you're saying that the electron now. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Go with me. Neil, Neil, I have to understand what? this. Please, please, stop. Stop. Okay. Slow down. Go Slow down. Go you're moving. Go you're moving too fast for the millennial age okay. who don't study it's science. Okay. okay. You got it. You got it. When you have a positron, which is a positive electron, an electron, an negative mm-hmm. electron, you're saying if you put them back together, you get a neutral particle. But when you put them back no. together, no, 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 I am not saying that at all. When you put them back together, the question is, what do you get? Because what will happen is that if you put a positron back together with an electron, okay, then you'll get two gamma ray photons, half the energy of the positron, uh, the photon that came in, and they will fly off in opposite directions. And whatever mm-hmm. was there to make the field will disappear. Science Back into the electromagnetic wave. Science, science called it annihilation. Hmm. Pardon me. I study physics. There's no such thing as annihilation. Nothing annihilates. Nothing is created. Nothing is destroyed. You can't use the word annihilation. But they did. And by doing it, they put aside this big chunk of science. You can't say annihilation. I, it's not me that says this. This is what science says. Uh, that nothing can be created. Nothing can be destroyed. It can be changed, but it cannot be created or cannot be destroyed. So if you've got, if you have this high energy photon strikes something, okay, it splits in half, whatever it is, splits in half, and you get uh, an electron and positron, which have half the energy of that photon. And it has one half of electromagnetic field, and the other one has the other half of the electromagnetic field. Then what did the photon strike? It struck a full field. Okay. Mm-hmm. Had to. Had to. In fact, it's an in-facing field. So like, wait, um, wait. Define, define an in-facing field, please. An in-facing field would be a field in which the positive portion of the field is at the core and the, and the negative portion of the field is like a shell around it. Now, there's some depth that you have to go to in physics to understand why that could happen. But right now, let's just, just take a look at it. You've got the positron. You've got the positive portion of the field on the inside. And then you've got the negative portion of the field like a shell around it. Okay, they can't. Oh, it's join. sort of like it's sort of like a planet with a crust and a core, and the crust it's has sort of, one polarity. It's sort of like an atom. It's sort of like an atom. 
it's like an atom with a, an electron shell. <laughs> okay. It's like everything we know. It's like everything we know. Everything we know. So you have a ne uh, positive at the core. So what happens is your high-energy photon pierces the electron shell, hits the photon, and knocks it out of the core. Half the energy joins the positron, positive charge. Half the energy joins the, electro the negative charge. And now you have two particles of matter. So you've turned by adding a half field charge to that half of that energy, you have created matter. And that's what matter is. <laughs> matter is energy plus magnetic field or half a magnetic field. So your electron is a half a magnetic field with half of the uh, proton, uh, photon. And the positron is half of the other half of the field with the other half of the energy. Now, if you want, if you put them together, if you make them join, what will happen is the field will join, the energy will fly off into two gamma ray charges, basically light charges, and mm -hmm. they seem to dis it seems to disappear. If you well, they keep going and going, they happening. keep going in opposite directions forever, right? The gamma ray particles, unless they doesn't matter. The point is. <laughs> <laughs> they go. You got a gamma ray charge. It goes off and just dissipates the light and gets absorbed by another atom or whatever mm -hmm. that one is. It's natural, the natural forces take over. Until so they have, each produce not, another pair. Don't they eventually, in your model, no, because produce they're only pair? half of a charge. They're only half of a charge. They're, they're, they're only half of that. A photon is a gamma ray particle is half the photon charge. So it's not going to produce a pair. This takes, it, takes a, it takes a photon of a, a sufficient charge to be able to do it. <laughs> okay. Now, the question is, can you keep the electron and the positron from joining so that they can continue a process that they might continue to make new matter? Can, can you, you do put that? them in orbit around each other? Like well, solar I can, systems? I can, mm -hmm. What you can do is you could put them in a Van Allen belt, for example. You could put them in a Van Allen belt where you have negative and positive uh, uh, particles, and they'll they will go and they, they will go. You can also do them in a, in, in a um, uh, at a giant um, uh, what do you call? Um, I can't think of it. Accelerator, uh, circular accelerator. Yes, if you can put like it in an accelerator and you can li yeah, like CERN and you can line up the negative fields, then you can keep them alive and apart from one another, and you can gather up uh, positrons. Then they won't annihilate with quote annihilate unquote with <laughs> electrons, and you can hold on to them. So the question is, where is there a place like that that nature has made? Well, let me see. The electromagnetic field of the Earth goes around the Earth and it goes through the poles down into the center of the Earth and it rides the outer core of the Earth. So, therefore, hmm. there must be Van Allen belts inside the outer core of the Earth because it's exactly the same field that goes around the Earth. So, therefore, if that's true, then inside the Earth at the outer core, you should be able to find within the magnetic field that spins around in there, you should be able to find Van Allen belts where electrons and positrons freely avoid each other. And that's where the process happens. Or not. 
could be wrong. So you're talking about a matter nursery based on this physics, published mainstream why physics. Why do all planets, why do all moons, planets, and suns exist to be matter nurseries for the universe and make the universe grow? Hmm, I know it okay. sounds like a stupid something, but there you go. No, That's why they're there. That's why they're there. That's why hydrogen gathered and to make hydrogen suns at the beginning, and all we had was hydrogen. And hydrogen finally made helium, and helium finally made with all that energy made pair production. And with pair production, you had a, you increased your magnetic field, and it became a nursery for new matter. The new matter is made and thrown out into the solar system, gathered by your magnetic fields of your solar system, turned into meteorites, small moons, and finally into planets. All suns make their own solar systems. I know this is very radical stuff. I understand. <laughs> Believe me. Well, actually, there it. are it some Soviet papers. Neil, Neil, Neil. There are some Soviet papers from the 1960s that basically put this model out there. Now, the West didn't really like the Russians because of the Cold War and communism and Stalin and all that. You see but why how good it is geniuses. not to be affected by any of this stuff? Well, yeah. But there are some geniuses so, who tried to publish these ideas in the Soviet Union, including <laughs> the galaxies create matter and that galaxies spawn their own dust clouds, star systems, planetary systems, et cetera, et cetera, from the core. Carl Sagan was wrong? Oh, no. Yes, Carl was wrong. Carl was wrong about a few things. Well, the the thing that, that, that you have to remember, okay, is that the universe had to be made some way. And it wasn't made well, by the Wizard yeah. of Oz. It wasn't well, made Abbe, by the Wizard Abbe of Oz. Le, Le Matre, you know, remember, remember Abbe Lamatre at the same time as Kerry's holding his conference in the mid-50s? He comes up with the you know, cosmic egg, the explosion, the Big Bang, you know, which was Fred Hoyle's derogatory term of it, because Fred was into continuous creation. How is this matter all created newly in a finite universe, Neil? Where does the matter ultimately come from? It comes from that. It comes from pair production. But it's it got to come from pair production. pair production. Just a transformation. In order for something to appear, something right, else try has this, to try this. Has try to this pain. because I'm going to take you deeper into this, and then your feet are going to feel. Oh, like hang on, hang on. Take me deeper after the top of the hour because we um, are okay, literally at the top of a new break. Um, my guest this morning is Neil Adams. We're having a very remarkable geophysics and high-energy astrophysics conversation. And we're going to uh, continue that conversation as soon as we take a short break. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back on this Sunday night, January 14th, two weeks into 2018. My guest this morning is Neil Adams, and we're taking a deep dive into some radical geophysics, from which we then take a pitch over into his equally radical, if not more radical, theoretical astrophysics and cosmology. And yeah, ultimately, we're going to get to the whole dang universe. So with that uh, said... Neil, welcome back to the other side. Thank you. So before we go back to the Earth, because in in the end, one does have to flee back to the Earth to go over this Pangea theory because it get, gets a little heady. Uh, let us suppose, okay, that the universe is not empty or void because <laughs> nothing likes to be empty or void. It fights back. Let's say it's filled with infacing fields. Now, because these are in-facing fields, since the magnetic field does not face outward, okay, it just goes in and out between the core and the shell, okay, then you can pack a hell of a lot of these into your universe. You can pack billions and billions. In fact, you can pack them so dense, they're denser than steel by far. And yet we, since we're made of half fields, our fields outward, can't identify them. We wouldn't even know that they're there. The universe is made, let's say, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying, speculating. The universe is made of these fields, and it's so dense that it's denser than steel, yet, of course, we can't identify it because we identify things by fields. If I put my hand on the table in front of me, my hand is not actually touching the table. The fields are interacting. Nothing about my finger uh, or the atoms of my finger is touching the atoms of the table. In fact, it'll probably get an explosion if it did. So all those, all that magne- all those magnetic fields don't exist in the in-facing fields of what we call, let's say, call it prime matter. Okay, it's not until you knock that core out of that field that the field expands outward and becomes a real field. That becomes matter. Okay, one of the reasons why I say there's no such thing as quarks is because I just don't believe that God makes up particles just for the hell of it. I think that everything (laughs) must follow logically and must make sense, uh, and uh, there has to be a logic to it all. Well, this is the search for the so-called – 
This huh? is the search for the so-called grand unified field theory or theories, of which there I are a lot out there. Searching. I kind of searched stopped searching <laughs> 10 years ago. I, I, I really think that – But you're proposing a, one. But, you know, God knows it can't – That's what you're doing on the show tonight. You're, you're proposing yeah. a grand unified theory, aren't you? Yes, indeed. I'm sorry. I apologize for everybody who's out there. <laughs> sorry. It's coming from me. You know, it should be coming from somebody with a lab coat on, but there you go. So if you have a universe filled with these things, what happens is the first piece of instant of pair production is the first particle of matter. Those electrons and positrons that are first made fire out into this, quote, empty universe. And really, they don't, they never get together and they, don't, they can't have an eye. No, wait, wait, let, let me, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sorry, sure. you lost me. You lost me. We start out with a completely empty, dark universe, right? Got to get some energy from somewhere. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. Where's that first okay. energy? And, from? and, and, and I don't know, you know, let me just say this. I'm not God. You might've known, noticed that I am not God. If anybody thought I might be God, I'm not God. I don't know all the answers to everything in the universe, but I would say that if you have, just follow the logic here. If you have pair production, that is, if you increase energy wherever it is, let's say in a lightning bolt or cosmic rays coming down from the sky, if you incre- wherever you increase energy, you create pair production. That has to mean that there's something there waiting to be split by that energy. Mm-hmm. And the more energy you create, the more pair production happens. That means there must be an awful lot of this stuff waiting to be split by energy. So the more energy you have, the more pair production. If you have a lightning bolt, you have tons of pair production going on. It happens anytime you have a lightning bolt. Uh, anytime you have high energy, you're creating pair production, and you can do it in a lab. You can, you, you can do it when you go and have a, a, a test in a lab. You have positron emission tomography, and they just do it, and you can, they can scan your body with it. So process is there for the energy to co- to cause to happen with pair production so if these fields are there they have to be everywhere but there's nothing stopping them from getting very very close together because they are in facing fields yeah i mean you know the field of an atom how wide it goes you know they give the analogy of a flea in a, in a football state that's a very, very big field. Where if you take that field and collapse it inside itself, you can pack an awful lot of those in, a, in Yankee Stadium. And if you do that, then they're just waiting, okay, to be turned into field. So what will happen is high-energy photon strikes one, and guess what? The field expands outward. So the field – okay, let me just back up a little bit. The universe that we know is not the little solid ball that float around in the universe. The universe is the electromagnetic fields around those balls. Mm-hmm. They are or the electromagnetic those, fields. Or, or, or <coughs> around those galaxies, those suns, points, so Around those points in 3D. The, Neil, uh, we, we have a time lag with blog talk, so I want to stop I'm and get sorry. a verification. Sure. You're saying it's really the fields around matter, but what you're really saying, if matter is defined by the presence of these little fields – it's the fields mm-hmm. around some kind of point, which is kind of indescribable. It well, just, we its identity is really I mean, a field. In the in in the case of in the case of a of a planet, we can see the point. Okay, it's a planet. 
but, but the, the field yeah, around the, point, the huh? planet, but the but the field around the planet is gigantic. Hmm. So if your universe, the part of the pieces of your universe, the ones that you see exist the way they are, then you could say, well, there's all these little particles, and then there's all this space, but there's no space. It's electromagnetic fields pushing outward. That's mm. why these things don't bunk into one another. They push outward. It's the fields pushing up. The universe is growing not because of the, at, the uh, suns and the planets and the moons, but because of the fields around them are all pushing against one another. New suns are being made all the time in nebula and pushing in between, and the universe is growing because it's all pushing outward. It's evenly distributed throughout the whole universe it's not a shell expanding like a balloon it's mm. evenly distributed throughout because it's fields that are pushing away from one another why don't we know this we know this if we know it's it's true in your body all the cells in your body all the atoms in your body are pushed apart by all the other cells that's why you don't compress into a little point the size of a needle point because mm -hmm. all these fields are pushing away from one another. Same thing with planets and suns and galaxies and, and the universe. It's all pushing away because we are taking particles that are or fields that are in facing, suddenly rupturing them, popping them out, turning them into, into matter. And the matter now has fields that express outward and become uh, pushing outward of the universe. Okay, that's you, how you keep talking about. about yeah, it's a grand field. I'm sorry. <laughs> you keep talking about fields pushing out. Then where does sure. gravity come in? Because gravity doesn't push. Gravity pulls, or or maybe, okay. maybe it does push. It depends on your yeah. you know pushing okay. theory hold, of gravity. Hold on. How, how does gravity? Hold, 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 hold on. Okay. For every force, there's an equal and opposite force, right? For every right, we know that. Okay, Newton. Newton. Young. Yeah, we know that. For Okay, now where's the opposite force of gravity? <laughs> what happened to it? Uh, it doesn't obey the rules. Oh, that's the exception. It does. There's no anti-gravity. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Of course, there is. There's a pushing away. Do we? Can we identify it? No, we're little creatures on a gravity ball. We can't do that. We do find anomalies in measurements, but what about what? What happens to the gravity between uh, solar systems? Why aren't the solar systems crashing into one another? Why? Because they're pushing away from one another. Hold on a second. Let's talk about planets going around the sun. Okay, you have planets going around the sun. You know, it's odd. They're at measured distances from the sun, like they're following electromagnetic lines. Well, wait a second. Those electromagnetic lines are holding you to a, an orbit around the sun. What about in between? Well, in between, they're pushing you away from that orbit. They're attracting you to that orbital line, which is, you look at a magnet, you see little iron filings being attracted to those lines. Is that all that's happening? No. What's happening is the iron filings are be, being attracted to the electromagnetic line, but in between the electromagnetic line, the negative force mm. is pushing them toward that line and away mm. from the middle. Don't you Wait think planetary orbits that. more, don't you think planetary orbits more fit some kind of central force emanating that is wave structure and you get constructive and destructive interference patterns no, and the planets no, hang out at, at nodes? No, it's just mag it's magnetic lines from the sun. So obvious. You can just measure it. Do the math. It's uh, so simple. It's terrible that it's so simple. All right, here's, a, here's one. I got one for you. Here you have the moon, okay? You got a tide on the earth. 
Okay, you got a tide on the earth. Then you have another tide on the other side of the earth. What's that other mm-hmm. tide? Well, the t- the other tide is the electromagnetic force from the earth and from the moon going back around to the other side of the earth and lightening that. Because it's a like a bar magnet. So that force is pushing that tide outward because the the magnetic force goes around the earth and goes to the other side. It's not just gravity pulling you toward the, toward the moon. It's a full field. And therefore you go to back to go around to the other side of the earth and it's pulling outward on the other side of the earth. It's part of the magnetic force of between the two planets. Okay, have we let examined me ask you this? Do we know it to be let true? Ask, no, we don't know it me, to be true, but it's the only well, answer. Well, but there is no such thing as an only answer until you have data well, to support your own answer. There's magic. There's magic. I don't know. There's magic. Okay. Well, why but, why but, do we have a second tide? Why do we have a second tide? The standard theory is, is centrifugal force that the other side of the Earth is farther away from the moon than the nearer yeah. side. So as the Earth is mm-hmm. rotating, it literally the, the gravitational force is weakened enough that you get a bulge on the opposite side. Um, why, do we ha- why don't we have that on the side of the Earth? On the, what do you mean on the Why side? Why don't we have it on the side? Oh, we have one, one that's facing the moon, and we have the other side that's right. facing outward from the moon. What about the side? Well, you have two pairs. In other words, if, if, you, if you looked at the Earth, there? if you looked at Why the Earth, well, because, because water flows. It doesn't allow you to kind of stick up on, on, the, on the 90 degrees. It doesn't towards. flow 1,000 miles an hour because that's how fast the orbit is around the moon goes around the Earth, 1,000 miles an hour. A lot of this stuff actually, is totally unexamined. A lot actually, of the moon moves at about really 2,000 miles an hour. The moon no, is moving 1, about 2,000 miles an hour. It's 1,000 miles an hour. Trust me, 24,000 miles around the Earth. It's 24 hours in the day. It's 1,000 miles. You said the moon. I'm geeky enough to study all you this mean, stuff. You mean the spit? You mean the... You mean the, the uh, a patch the moon of essentially goes the around the Earth. Yes, right. It goes around the Earth 1,000 miles an hour. Water doesn't move that fast. It just bulges out. Neil, stop, stop. The moon is moving around the Earth at 2,000 miles an hour. You know how we know this? 1,000. No, it's two. I I can make some money tonight. The reason we know Mm -hmm. this is because it moves its own width. It's roughly 2,000 miles in diameter in an hour during an eclipse. It's the Earth that spins at about 1,000 miles an hour at the equator. Right. And the moon stays above it. No, it doesn't. It rises well, 13 okay. degrees further to the east every day. You're thinking moon, of synchronous okay. satellites, <clears throat> which are in orbit 22,300 miles up. And they're moving about 6,000 miles an hour. How long does it take the moon to get around the Earth? A month. 30, 29 That's days, right. 30 days. Right. It's so moving about 2,000 miles an hour. Okay. Anyway, let's not get hung up on a point. But get a pad. I think we are. Think the we standard are. model for why you get tidal bulges on both sides of rotating fluids is because of centrifugal force and the lower gravitational field because of the further distance. I mean, on the other side of the Earth, you're 8,000 miles further from the moon than you are on the near side. So they say, yep. see, I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but that's their conventional explanation. I know. I, know. I have. I have. It's silly. It's really silly. Okay. 
but it's the standard model, which has been I, in operation for 300 years. Yes, right. If it's so, so silly, where all? We, if it's so silly, Neil, where are all the bright people to say, "Oh my God, that's silly." Nobody is measuring it from that point of view. They're not saying that there's a field that's causing this. They're saying it's quote gravity. Mm-hmm. It's the magical other case, force. There's no no electromagnetic field that's doing this. It's gravity. It's the magical force. There's no. It's not electromagnetic. In fact, if look at if you're going to have a simple theory. Okay. If you're going to have a simple theory, because you're making me go want to go to my pad and, and do the math on the moon. God, I, you really distracted me here. You it's really two thousand miles me. an hour. Over go around, it's only one twenty. Goes only one twenty fourth of the distance. If it takes a month to go around, it only goes one twenty fourth of the distance. Matt, that's not a circuit around the Earth. That's in one day. It only goes one twenty fourth of the distance. So how could that be two thousand miles? Doesn't make any sense. You're throwing me off here. No, it goes 2,000 miles per hour times 24. So it's 2,000 no, times okay, the Earth 24 the Earth, miles. We're going to get stuck on this. The Earth spins 1,000 miles what, an we, hour. You, you, you can do the check during the next break. So let's move on because we've got a ton of interesting okay. stuff. You've okay. got diagrams okay. and radio with pictures. You've got okay, you, you do building. the same thing. You do the same thing. You do the same thing. We'll both do the same okay. thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you no, get to dinosaurs. I love. See, I want. I want. Let's let's let us get to data. How okay. much observable empirical data is there now okay. that basically okay. says that Sam Carey was right? Okay. There's more than when Sam Carey was alive. Here, I'll give you. Uh, I'll, I'll start with this, um, but you'll come back to me with this one thing. Um, the um, the uh, the sea level 180 million years ago when you had we had mm-hmm. Pangaea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sea level was a theoretical feet. Pangaea. Well, right. Uh, sea level was 800 feet deeper than it is today. 800 feet deeper than it is. Today. Now I'm going to quote you something. I'm not going to quote you. I'm going to tell you some things that science will tell you. Okay. Is true. Okay. Then you can work out the logical conclusion. Science will tell you that the sea level was 800 feet deeper than it is today. They will then tell you that two-thirds of the continental plate was covered by water 180 million years ago. Two-thirds of the continental plate was covered by water. Okay? okay. They called them shallow seas. Okay? For example, in North America, the whole center oh, the whole, the of whole North central, America, yeah, exactly. the whole center of North America from the top of Canada all to all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and then bleeding up into other areas and also the co- the west coast and also the east coast because most of those maps are wrong because there were no they show mountains on the west coast and they didn't exist 180 million years ago didn't exist okay they started about They're, 65 the, million years ago exactly the so-called Laramid revolution so you have a little problem there because now every map that they're showing is wrong because they show mountains. Okay, we can skip that for the sake of geology and we'll say, okay, what the hell? But two thirds, nearly two thirds of North American continent was covered by shallow seas. It was like two continents. Okay, same with all the other continents. Two thirds of the continental plate was covered by shallow seas. Now, when they show you the map of Pangaea, they sort of don't put in the shallow seas. <laughs> they say, 
well, you know, we're not putting, I don't know why we're not putting in the shallow seas. We'll put in irregular lines or something that show the edges of the continents are kind of weird. So now you have two thirds of the continental, of, of all the continents that are all supposedly jammed together in one giant uh, island, okay? Two thirds of them were covered by shallow seas. That would make Pangaea look about like the Philippines, mm. a series of islands, a series of or islands. Indonesia. Yeah, there's no – there's two-thirds is two-thirds. I didn't say mm-hmm. it. Geology says it. Two-thirds of the continental plate were covered. Seven-eighths of the world. Two-thirds of the continental plates were covered by water. So let me let me. How let could me they have straight. a big – Hang on, hang on. How hang could on. they have a big I, I, giant I, I, island? Because we don't have a picture up on Radio with Pictures. I have to do this in words. That's so right. I'm imagining right. an earth with blue oceans. We've got uh, Pangaea as an a island, island, a huge continental island on one side, right. and riveling right. that island are basically on a lot of water so that most of that island is really just underwater and only little parts of it stick up. Am I correct? That's right, like islands, like islands, yeah, like, like the Philippines. I call it the Philippines. Like Micronesia, like Micronesia. Oh, right, right. Now, how does that make an island? You know where all the all the plants and animals migrated back and forth from the seven different continents. What picture have you ever seen in any science textbook that shows Pangaea with two thirds of it underwater? None. Never Zero. in your life. Never in your life. Worse than that. Okay, I'll give mm-hmm. you this. I'll give you something else. When they in the '60s, and I sort of I got interested in the subject in the '60s. They discovered they went through the ocean. They tried to find fish fossils. Okay. They couldn't find any fish fossils older than 70 million years old. Oh, oh really? 70 million. Really? They actually so couldn't we find have... any continental plate older than 80 million years old, but there is some. But they couldn't find fish fossils. Now, fish have existed on Earth for 400 million years. Where do they exist? They exist on the continental plates. Only... <laughs> When you go to a mm-hmm. museum and they say, this is the ichthyosaur and this is where he – and this is – we found him in Florida. We found him here. We found him – they tell you where they found him, you know, in the Gobi Desert or in Utah or wherever. They never tell you they found him in the deep ocean because they didn't. They found him on the continental plate, and then they'll say in the very next sentence, this fish swam in the oceans, and you go, really? Then why didn't you find him in the oceans? First of all, there weren't any oceans. Second of all, they weren't in the oceans. They were on the shallow seas that covered two-thirds of the continental plate. Were these salt or were they freshwater? There's an interesting question. There is an interesting question. Okay. Let us say, okay, do do you know how we find salt? Mm, This gets a really interesting area. Yeah, we it's have a huge underground. You know, underground you know where they Mexico. find it? You know where you find it? It's really it's down where the oil is. Now, mm-hmm. on the continental plate, how would you get down to that salt? You kind of wouldn't. You wouldn't get down to the oil unless it burbled up somewhere, but pretty much you wouldn't get down to that salt. There is a way you could get down to that salt. That is, if the land cracked open. Let's say in the Gulf of Mexico, you have something like 200 salt domes that the Gulf of Mexico cracked into. 
Salt domes are under the ground, and they're giant pillows of salt. They're 10 miles long, they're three miles wide, and they're two miles deep. Mm. Two miles deep. Deposits from the ocean? Feet. Really, really, I don't think so. Really, two miles deep, that would be one hell of a geological thing. Okay. No, they're found in the continental plate because they're not finding them in the ocean. They're finding them in the continental plate because the cracks go across it and break into the salt domes and that salt seeps into the ocean. Wait a second. If there were no oceans, then all the water on the continental plate would be fresh water. Mm-hmm. You would never have until you cracked into them. Mm-hmm. You would never have salt water. Until you cracked into the salt dome. So therefore, it would take many, many thousands, millions of years for fish to adapt to the new salt water. Because they would die. Well, but depending they would upon the rate at the, which the live. oceans got salty. Well, it would have to get pretty salty when you start. Yes, exactly. It would have to get pretty salty pretty quick. Gulf of Mexico, 200 salt dome. That's The point is, okay, all... All they've recently Neil, can I ask an impertinent question? Yes, can but I ask before an you do, let me just let me just let me make a statement and then go with that, okay? okay. They just okay. recently discovered not has nothing to do with me. Recently discovered that the historically all the original fish families were freshwater fish. Wow. All of them. Where is that published? I uh, I have a reference in my site, and I'm sorry I can't I just jump to it, but uh, it, it's it's there. All of okay. the fish families. Because if you can send a link, that, or Marilyn can send a link to sure, Katia, sure, 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 sure. that would sure. be super. Sure. Okay, here's my impertinent question. Coming directly off that one, where sure. did the salt come from? Well, let me speculate based on the growing earth. Okay? Mm-hmm. All, all atoms come up from the inside of the earth that's superheated in a form of gas, because that's what individual atoms are, even if they're iron. Hmm. If you have individual atoms, they're basically a gas. And so they rise from the inside of the earth, and they seek their level, or seek a level. Okay? Certain gases, let me see, what do we make uh, salt from? Sodium and chlorine. Exactly. So they come up like the other gases. They seek their level. Okay, where they can cool and stop rising, float around under the earth because they are gases until they find crystals like them, like other crystals find each other in caves and other places, okay, and join that crystal to become crystal salt. No, this is weird. This is really weird because you're having matter pass through solid matter. How does a chlorine or sodium atom get from the center of the earth? to within a few miles of the surface across yes, 4,000 miles. Exactly. How does it go through how solid do we have, how, do we have, how do we have rifts in the ocean that, that erupt all the gases that make all the atmosphere of the Earth? How, do that, how does that happen? Where does that come from? It you comes from the inside model? of the Earth. Oh, uh, well. It no, comes no, from the inside of what? the Earth. Okay. It come, where else can it come but from? Do, but, but does it come from a point or is it a volume? And see, what you're raising is this idea – you're raising the idea that the interior of the earth is so segregated into different elements that it completely is radically different than the conventional models, in which case why don't we see it on seismic 
measurements because sound waves uh, we do. travel the weird thing is The weird thing is that we do. We okay. really do. You okay. can see you can data. see the different well, you can see how I don't uh, memorize the feet down, but you have the moho discontinuity where it goes from solid to uh, liquid or superheated gases or a plasma. Then you have the solid core. Uh, solid core is clearly core, uh, solid because seismic waves go through it at a different rate than they go through the outer core, which mm-hmm. they go through at a different rate. The mantle, mm-hmm. uh, the oh, uh, seismic waves go through the mantle, did but they're also, by the way, hang on, hang on, hang don't on, hang forget. On. Did you did you okay. see that recent paper where they measured the velocity of sound waves through the center of the Earth? The so-called solid core is There's different been a number ahead, along yeah. the axes. As opposed yeah, they're saying to right spinning. angle to yeah. the axes. Yeah, they're saying it's spinning. And no, it, it has it, it has a cubical Earth. geometry. It's like a mm. giant cube, and it's oriented with the corners, with the point of the cube, which is really two entwined tetrahedrons aligned perfectly with the spin axis of the Earth. That's measurements now. That's not theory. That's measurements. Yeah. Mm. That is stunningly important for this model. Mm, I think so. I personally think that the core of the Earth is solid hydrogen, like all the other all the, uh, large planets. But there you go. Hmm. So you don't think it's nickel iron? No. Nickel iron would be melted, just like it is not in the, the core, outer core. Not under the well, pressure. Well, you, know, you know, you say that, but you know, the, you have variations in the pressures. There's all kinds of all kinds of weird speculations that go on about the inside of the Earth. There's no reason why it shouldn't be solid hydrogen, just like it is in Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, and uh, the larger planets. Mm, wait, 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 wait. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Another, another weird get, uh, paradox here. By the here. way, because by the way, where does the heat come from for the Earth? If the core exactly. is solid, then where does the heat come from? It's, it's, it's the hydrogen creating helium. Okay, let's go back to the salt no, no, thing. No, no, no. Let's go back to the let's go back to the okay. salt thing. If salt okay, you know you know about you know you know about plumes, superheated plumes that come up from the inside of the earth. Yeah, and we're at the bottom of the yeah. so Let's hold plumes and yeah. salt and all okay. this amazing. Don't, don't forget control. that. Don't forget that when you ask a question. Like we we okay. will we will come back to plumes. Yes, yeah, okay. plumes like Hawaii. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're on the other side of midnight, everyone. My guest this morning is Neil Adams. And we are having one heck of an interesting conversation about geophysics and planetary physics. It's probably making the mainstream folks listening to us hair curl and turn white. Oh, my God, two heretics together in the middle of the night. Absolutely. We're in the middle of the night. We're on January 14th, Sunday night. You're in the land of enchantment. And you're tuned to the other side of midnight. And we shall return. I think we're going to do something interesting tonight. Why don't we pick up one of our volunteers, someone who's done incredible yeoman service to this show and to the enterprise and to what we're trying to accomplish. 
And why do we let him tell our audience why he has volunteered his very, very valuable time to help the other side of midnight? Kintia? Oh, okay. Well, you said let him tell it. So first of all, I just want to say one of the reasons I volunteer for this show is like the opportunity to listen to two titan thinkers hash it out, (laughs) the creation of the universe. I am like spellbound here, and my mind is like just seeing all these visions of creation. So thank you, both of you. That's why I'm here. And uh, Keith Morgan step forward to really help save this show. Keith, I don't know if you can can come off mute, but I'd really love for you to share why you invest your energies and your time in helping to share these amazing shows. I'm like, amazing tonight. Thank you. Hi. Uh, The reason I put my time into helping with the other side of midnight is because I when I first looked at this back in 1988, um, a lot of things took place, like Goddard manipulating the ABC, our ABC camera crew away from Goddard Space Flight Center, and then the discovery I made of the Morgan curve on Mars and Earl Torrin, then expanding on that, uh, pointed to me that none of this is a joke. The math doesn't lie. The information is, is real. And as I got into the tablets from Samaria with uh, Zachariah Sitchin's uh, translation, I realized that uh, the history of this planet is not what we've been told. And the science is not at 100%. And we've been told stuff that was impossible, couldn't be done. And I've watched all of that stuff fall by the wayside. So um, I see this as a as a good cause for being able to get the word out that, hey, there's science beyond what the mainstream science has been handing us all of this time, and that we have to stop and take a, a step back and look at what's taking place. My, uh, <clears throat> my astronomy professor told me, well, we think the universe is expanding because we have galaxies that are moving away from us. And as you go further out to the next galaxy, it's getting closer to the speed of light. And then we get to the 14 million light year. You mean billion? There's nothing. 14 billion light year uh, level. And there's nothing after that. And I said, based on that, theoretically, everything should be moving faster than the speed of light. So we should never see the light from those galaxies because they're at that level where they're now moving faster than the speed of light, according to your theory. If I go five galaxies out towards that edge at that fifth galaxy, I should see five galaxies past what I could see when I was five galaxies behind. And he said, well, I don't think so. And I said, well, according to your theory, it should be that way. Um, And I think that's probably we're seeing some kind of effect that is not truly the Doppler effect that we think we're seeing. We're seeing some other form of physics that we haven't yet to understand. And the Pleiadians told us, if you listen to Edward Meyer, that using light to measure the distance between stars is wrong. It's because light is variable. And we've just found out that yes, light is variable in terms of speed. It doesn't stay consistent. Uh, it does change based on gravitational influence and a whole bunch of other things. So um, 
putting in my time with the other side of midnight, I think is going to help lead to the disclosure because the science is at the point where it's about to change. And all throughout our history, the world has come to an end as they have known it again and again, from the change of light bulb to the automobile to the computer. And the next generation coming in doesn't realize that the previous generation, they didn't get uh, the idea that, hey, the world as they knew it came to an end. And in my generation, I've seen the world come to an end several times on a lot of the technologies and things that people said were impossible. And it's going to keep changing. And those things that people said are impossible, as long as you can imagine them, there's going to they're going to eventually prove that, yes, if you can imagine it, you can be done. It's just where do we stand in the technology and our understanding of the universe and the science? So, Okay. Well, thank, <clears throat> thanks, Keith. Believe me, your efforts are keeping us on the air, keeping us straight and narrow, and we're solving our technical issues one at a time. Thanks again. <laughs> And welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Sunday night. Uh, Neil, um, back to the question. If, if you've got a central core of hydrogen and you've got mm-hmm. sodium and chlorine floating above it by 4,000 miles... No, 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 no. no. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You have to build. You have to build atoms. Okay. You can't. You okay. you you have to build atoms in the same general proportion that you have the atoms in the Earth already. So you build a given number of hydrogen atoms. You build a given number of oxygen atoms. You must do this on some kind of layering. I don't know how what it looks like or what it acts like or how it is. So it'll be a shell. Essentially. Model. It, it, essentially, it's a manufacturing. It's a yeah, onion. Manufacturing it's a onion. Huge onion. Yeah, okay. good thing. Yes, right. So you have um, uh, this the the process that takes place in the outer core. Okay, which I consider to be plasma. I do not believe that it's iron. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't mm-hmm. think it makes sense that the that you have iron and then you have a solid iron core because the core is making heat and the and the heat of the core is much 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 greater. Than the outer core. So, how do you get a solid iron core? Logically, that should be hydrogen, and it's producing helium, and it's producing energy for the Earth, and it's heating the Earth just like it is for the other planets, just like Jupiter will turn into a sun one day, and just like things are evolving toward whatever it is they're evolving toward to make new planets. I think that that's probably uh, probably the case, and that nuclear furnace that's happening at the core of the Earth is what's heating the Earth. And it's not, you know, it's not getting uh, colder. It's the fact that the okay, that just is, so is we can kind getting of thicker. Let Let's give people kind of a measure of the radical, radical revolution that you, per um, Sam Carey, are advocating. You're basically saying well, that every ball of matter we see, from planets to stars to satellites, mm-hmm. moons. Is well, creating you know, new not, matter. I, mean, I wouldn't say a meteor. I wouldn't say a meteorite. A meteorite is getting bigger by accretion, but you that's, have you have that, to be you have to be big enough to, moon. to start. Yeah. To, yeah, you really have yeah. to stop at the, a moon. You know, where, where there's a process. Okay, going so on so so let's 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 kind of speculate here. 
if this is true, if matter is being created at the center of every sensibly massed body, meaning of of a small moon, then everything is getting bigger. It's getting more complex chemically. The stars... It's not much more complex. I mean, we have a pretty basic... Well, how come the sun is predominantly hydrogen, overwhelmingly hydrogen, and the percentage of the solid elements well, on the Earth is composed. Hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen is the least complicated of anything. All it is is hydrogen. That's the simplest. It's the simplest atom. It doesn't even have a a, fo- a, new, a neutron. It's it's well, like I'm the talking very about basic the ratio, I'm talking about the measured ratio of hydrogen on the sun in the sun in stars compared to have so-called heavy elements. You know, hydrogen is overwhelmingly. It's like 100 atoms for every one of the, all the heavier elements. It's overwhelmingly okay. the predominant material, but not of the planets, except Jupiter and Saturn have a lot of hydrogen. But the star, sure. the sun, has most well, hydrogen. Gonna, so how do you get this well, what's differentiation? Gonna, uh, all right. Okay. <laughs> if you, if, when you have more, as your gravity increases, okay, you retain gases. For example. Uh, well, it's it's unfair to talk. Well, you can talk about the moon. The moon retains the, the really very basic, simple gases. Just hardly anything. And by the way, uh, the moon replaces its gases every couple of weeks when the solar wind blows the gases off the moon, and suddenly it replaces mm-hmm. the gases from the inside. But as you get and do you remember what the, what the moon's atmosphere is made of? I'm not really no. I don't. I didn't memorize it because there's I a care. there's a there's a huge amount of sodium. Compared I'm, I'm, to, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm down with that, but it's incidental. What I'm saying is that as your as your gravity increases, you're more likely to retain your gases. So then you have okay. the gas giant. So when you move to a larger planet, that larger planet's gravity will not allow the gases that are being manufactured inside the planet to leave. So the same gases that are being produced inside the Earth are being produced inside Jupiter, but Jupiter isn't letting them go. It's retaining them. So the bigger mm-hmm. a planet gets, the more it retains the gases. So you're going to have more and more hydrogen because uh, at the top of our atmosphere, tons of our gases are being blown off into space by the, by the uh, solar wind. Okay? And they have measurements of it. You can, you can look it up. There's tons of gases are being blown off. What replenishes those gases? Well, obviously, something must replenish the gases. Oh, some theory by science. No. Gases from inside of the Earth that comes up the rifts or comes up hot springs okay. or whatever comes Here's... up and replenishes the gases of the Earth, replenishes the water, and and it, as you get bigger, okay, then the the gravity can retain those gases, and then in effect you start moving toward a gas giant, and in the end, if you retain enough gases, you will also retain retain hydrogen, which is the lightest gas, and it's going to be held on. Uh, it's going to take more and more gravity to hold on to it. And for all we know, our sun was a planet around another solar system. And some people do speculate on that. I think it's probably a good speculation that our sun was Hmm. a planet like Jupiter around another solar system, in another solar system. There's nothing illogical about that. It's it's simply a matter of of growth and and moving on and evolving into the next thing. And you get to be the sun and you get to be a larger sun. You get to be a nova then you blast stuff out and you start new processes. It's just a simple, basic process See of what growth and increase. I, I want people to understand the magnitude of the revolution you are proposing here. You're mm-hmm. saying that basically everything we've learned in astrophysics for the last hundred years is flat mm-hmm. out wrong. 
totally and I'm really totally sorry. Wrong. I'm really sorry for no, anybody no, out there. I apologize. I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. But that's Didn't what you're saying. Nothing more, nothing less. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm saying there's no such thing as quarks. I'm saying so much of what we have in science is ridiculous. Yes, the universe is out, out there and goes, you know, uh, these things, I want to make some atoms. Why don't I make these three quarks? You know, I want to make them a little different from one another so I can do this. And I'll, you know, but I can't make them, you know, because, you know, you can't find a quark because it's gone once you make it. So you have to kind of pre-make it. And how do you do that? Well, I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out. I'm going to work on that for about a week, and I'll tell you how I'm going to do it. Universe is not creative. The universe is stupid. Okay? The universe doesn't go around and create particles. The universe is dumb. It gives us one miracle. Okay, one miracle. It creates a universe that's made out of something, and then it gives us pair production. And then uh, what happens is pair production, just like if you're an artist and you have three colors and you can make all the colors of the rainbow. Just like if you make light, you can make all the colors of light, and when you bring them together, you get one white light. You take pair production and you evolve it and work it and work it, and that process happens where you can create all the matter in the universe from one thing, pair production. Because guess what? The very first thing it does is it creates more than one-third of the particles of the universe. That's without even thinking. Electrons. And science is stuck on asymmetry. All of science goes, all of physics goes, Oh, there's too many electrons in the universe, and there's no positrons. There must be. My God, there's, I, I don't understand. Why are there so many electrons? And so we have to come up with more stupid theories to explain the asymmetry of the universe. No, my friend, there's a positron in the middle of every proton and neutron in the universe, right in the middle. That little positive charge that you see in there, that's a, pro, that's a positron. And if you count them, you will find that you have total symmetry of the whole universe. Ah, me. By the way, fish. Okay. Yes, back to fish. There are more. There's twice as many fish families. There's more fish in the sea. On the continental plate than there are in the ocean. Twice as many fish families on the continental plate as there are in the ocean. And let me do, let me try this. Let us say, let's go back to this, because every once in a while you go back to reality and your feet get warm or feet get cold by splashing them in the water. <laughs> if if, if two-thirds of the continental plate was covered by water, that means the water of the continental plate was contiguous with the deep oceans. So if the deep oceans were salt water, the two-thirds of the water on the continental plate had to be salt water. And it wasn't. Hmm. And it isn't. It doesn't. It's not. Wasn't. Didn't happen. This is all bull. This is all created theory. This is all this dumb thing on top of this dumb thing on top of this dumb thing. And then when you examine it, it just falls apart. The the ocean waters would be contiguous with the two thirds of the water on the continental plate. That means all the fish would be saltwater fish. There weren't mountains on the continental plate for water to rain on or to freeze at the top and to melt and come down to make rivers. There were no rivers. There was flash flooding. Most of the things that you learn are not true. I'm not saying, Neil, I mean, Neil, the, the, you, the, the, are, the you are, 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 you are
Neil, what, what you're basically saying is the last hundred years of science is totally flat-ass wrong. You know, all you in have every to do direction. is make one mistake. You, when you make one mistake in one area, then people follow that mistake. You have guys – look at 170 years ago, four or five uh, scientists, philosophers said, this is how the solar system was made. You had all this happening and all this stuff spun around, and now you have a solar system. That's 170 years ago. Philosopher scientists, guys that barely knew anything about scientists, they had this theory, and we've all been tracking that theory all this time. Nobody has reexamined it. They've even, I've heard, you know, papers, guys have written on, you know, we really ought to examine this solar system accretion thing, but they don't do it. But they don't do it. It's time we do it. We have to reexamine all of science because most of it is wrong. And every, it, it, I could sit, you could have a, a bunch of physicists, five physicists and geologists, and start throwing things at me, and I will throw the facts back at them that prove that it's not true. Geologists say we've had mountains on Earth for billions of years. We haven't had mountains on Earth for billions of years. We've had land that buckled into mountains, but the mountains started. Uh, after all the dinosaurs died 60 million years ago. And when I say started, I mean started. I mean, they weren't just blown up. They didn't just jump up into the air. It took them all that. All the Andes are, are less than 20 million years old. Where did these this It's all BS. It's all BS. It really is. There's so much wrong. It, the Earth has... Wait a minute. I'm now really. I'm. I'm, I'm sorry, Neil. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm confused again. I'm confused. Okay. If the in your standard in your conventional model, you said that the, the map makers, you know, don't put the Rockies there because they, you know, or, or the, I'm sorry, they do put the Rockies there when they do the mm -hmm. UNC and all that, right. and they shouldn't have been there until about sixty five million years ago. Five million years ago. So where, but they would be there. They would be starting there. They would be starting. Hang on. Hang on. Where do the, where do the mountains, mountains come from? Use ranges north and south, and in Africa, and in Europe, the Alps. And all. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? Oh, when you hear this, as soon as I say it, you're going to go, "Oh my God!" Oh, maybe you won't. If the Earth grows, and it does, and the continental plates stay the same size while the oceans spread, okay, you got to lock that picture in your head. The continents aren't getting bigger; they're like a rock on a plate. Okay, it's the plate mm -hmm. that's getting bigger. Okay, not the rock. Okay. Then they are their curvature is. Very oh, this is so cool! Keep going! Wow! <laughs> so it's what a so great idea. Earth, so as the Earth grows, the curvature gets flatter. The continental plate right now is approximately forty miles thick, whereas the oceanic plate is two miles thick. The continental plate is forty miles thick, so they recurve to a flatter plane. And Therefore, the to. upper portion has to buckle into mountain ranges. They wrinkle. Of like course Earth. they do. Of well, no, no, this is do. really elegantly cool and a major of part of this is. model. Well, well, okay, let's take the let's take the alternate. What crashed into the United States that made the Rocky Mountains? What crashed into South America that made the Andes? I'm sorry, nonsense. Just nonsense. Mm -hmm. Nothing crashed mm -hmm. into it. They buckled because they recurved to a flatter plane. And that's happening everywhere, wherever you drive, wherever you walk, wherever you go. It's everywhere. <laughs> oh, what an elegant, simple, beautiful idea. Mm -hmm. the, the, here's the, listen to this. The continental plate, okay, is approximately 40 miles thick, 
180 million years ago, it was probably between two and three miles thick, but I don't want to go into that because there's so much that explains why and how. But the oceanic plate is only two miles thick because that's a really good thickness so that you can have volcanoes. And the, the oceans have hundreds and hundreds of volcanoes everywhere. Okay. So you have two miles thick compared to 40 miles thick. They say, of course, that the oceanic plate subducts under continental plate. That would be like a cocker spaniel subducting, crawl, you know, swimming under a hippo stuck in the mud. <laughs> doesn't happen. Because Hold that have picture. Hold that con- picture in you your mind. Con- right. You have a continental plate that's 40 miles thick. That means it goes down into the asthenosphere ductile, not okay. liquid, ductile. Under the ocean, Plastic. it's liquid. Like, like, okay. like, like yeah. thick, thick, yeah. thick maple it's, syrup. It's, it's possible to move a little bit if you put a lot of pressure on it, but in the ocean, it just slides around, okay? So you have these continental plates. So if you were to take the continental plates and you were to crack them in a certain design, okay, and the earth grew, okay, the earth grew to five times its mass, twice its diameter, you could make it look like the earth that we see now simply by pushing the continental plates outward from the center, by putting a pin in the middle, pushing them outward from the center, and just letting the ocean spread between them. And if you look at the crustal age map and other maps, you will see the ages of the ocean going back, and you could track it. You can track it backward in time, okay? And they move, and basically it's just the ocean spreading. The continents hmm. are not moving around the earth. They're mm-hmm. 40 miles pretty much to the asthenosphere below and okay. because it's ductile. So I all you questions. get is spreading. So I have a map that I sent you. You can actually look at it. It's on your site. I think it's, okay? I think it's of the, up. I of think the it's continents up. Rot- rotating around. I don't know where you can see it. And what it's, all uh, you it's, see it's, is it's, as it's, it's rotating, the con- yeah, the continents are not moving. One. It's, it's right. a beautiful little right. animation. Right, right. Neil's and so the continent, yeah, right. So the continents are not moving. All they're doing is moving toward the center and then finally join. This is the picture. This is Pangea. Okay. So they basically expand radially outward from the center of I wouldn't the core say expand. because they're I pushed outward grow. by like a, flower, like, a, like a coconut. By matter huh? being created under their by feet. Growth. Of course. By matter being See, you keep using that word growth. To me, growth implies gardens. It implies something yes. from, you know, that's, that's a like coconut, sideways. A tomato, a baby, a baby, mm-hmm. anything. But they all, they all have a, they all have a growth yeah. medium to grow on. And we're back to the first part of the show. What's the growth yeah. medium? You're saying it's pear production in that's right. middle of empty space. If you, asked, if you asked any physicist in the world and to say, is there a form of, of matter creation in the universe? You know, you could the first first thing you would say is no, you can't create matter. And then he would have to say, well, there is. See, you're not talking creation; you're talking conversion, because the Ah, the pairs are ah, coming from ah, existing energy in a closed universe. But then don't we fall back into science? Science is right when it says matter can neither be created or destroyed, but it can be changed from a pre-matter. it, that wait, fills wait, isn't the there, universe is, and slows down light. Slows and down slows light. Slows down light. Okay. Fills the universe and slows down light to a medium that tra- only has the only ability to transfer that light. Okay. Unless mm-hmm. you can do it another way. Okay. And it tr- it transforms those magnetic fields by adding energy into matter. 
but it only makes half particles. It only makes negative yeah, yeah. particles we, that, and that positive was, that was our particles. first hour. Let's, I, I, I want to leap ahead. I want to do two things here. Oh, well, One yeah. is, please talk about Yellowstone. If the continent is Don't. 40 miles thick, there's such an energy building under Yellowstone, it will destroy sure. the United States, the economy, and basically the world. Where yeah. is that energy coming from, and it's why is here. it under a continent as opposed I'm to sure, a thin ocean? I'm sure it's ocean. because I think because, because I would have to speculate, but you know, I don't really like to speculate. I assume that there's a, a bubble of space underneath there that, that allows this material to come up. But why should I speculate on something I don't know? I just, I just like to talk about facts. It may surprise you to think that everything I've said is based on fact. It's all fact. I'm not giving you my speculation or my theory or any of this stuff. There is pair production. I didn't make it up. There's uh, the universe seems to be moving outward. All of these things that I'm saying, you can pick anyone and say, is that based mm -hmm. on fact? And I would give you the fact. No, no, no. Fact. You, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to totally, say, we're oh, totally I in agreement. We are totally I don't want to agree. I think you are this in, is happening, or I think this is happening. You are recontexting. None of that. None of that. You are you are recontexting proven empirical scientific experiments and observation. Okay, we will agree. You're giving a okay. a, a new spin. Uh, right. Remarkably interesting, and then your theory, your and Carrie's theory, makes predictions like I love the wrinkled mountains idea. It's so incredibly logical. Okay, right. let me ask you another one then. Try this one. Let's, try this one. Oh, first. come on. Let me, let, me, let me go to my question. I'm dying to ask this All question. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's, let's talk about dinosaurs. Okay. Okay. Because okay. that's another incredible. I'm a, I, let, me just say, let me just say something about me and dinosaurs. Okay? okay. I am a really good artist. I'm a really good artist. I, I know that. anatomy. I know anatomy backward <laughs> and forward. Backward and forward. Okay, I promise you. Well, I don't have to promise you because I can show you the facts that a T Rex can run 70 miles an hour. 70 miles an hour. You really mm -hmm. don't have to know too much to know that, but to know this if somebody runs or an animal runs, he basically falls forward. He has a given amount of time to place his forward running foot to the ground before he falls on his face. Okay, and that's a measured okay. time. Each animal also has a length of stride for when they're walking or when they're running. And you can measure that by bones. T-Rex running pace is something like 20 feet, can be as much as 25 feet. If you put the math of the, the amount of time it takes for his foot to hit before he falls on his face, together with the length of his stride and think that you run, when you run, it's three feet, <laughs> he runs Okay, say 24 feet. He runs eight times further in one stride than you do. Okay. Mm. So if he doesn't run, how does he survive? Let me, let me tell you a couple of theories. That okay, but hold that until past – hang on. Let's, okay. We're at the top of the sure, hour sure. again, so sure. let's hold it. We've right. got him on the knife edge point. I love okay. dinosaurs, and I have some okay. data on dinosaurs that you might not know. So sure. you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hogan. My guest this morning is Neil Adams, and we are ranging the geophysics of an ancient Earth that did not look like this, except the continents were kind of the same. They were all connected because the ball of the Earth was so much smaller, and then the Earth, to use an atomism, grew. Hold that thought. 
Hold that thought. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Sunday night, January 14th, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Gordon White. Well, not, not Gordon White. That was last night. See, Gordon's show was so amazing that I'm thinking while we're having this conversation that there are elements of that conversation that belong in this one because if the earth is, ex- well, that, that's probably another show. Neil Adams is my guest, and I will bring Neil on, and let me tell you what we're going to do. We've got phones. We've got people calling on the phone line. We're going to open the phone lines if you want to talk to Neil, have an interesting question, because I have some more, but I'm sure you have some as well. 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. And we may also bring members of our panel, kind of our behind-the-scenes panel, our our two experts on technology tonight, uh, Chris and Keith. And Kintia has been sending me little notes, so... They may come in too. Anyway, Neil, where were we? Uh, we were at the dinosaurs. Oh yes, dinosaurs. Uh, I was talking about the I was talking about the T Rex, but there's also the sauropods, which uh, actually there's bigger sauropods, but we'll talk about a 60 ton sauropod, which would be 10 times the weight of an elephant. It would uh, the analogy would be an elephant carrying 10 other elephants on its back. Not possible. Not possible. Okay. It's not going to, you're not going to see that. And by the way, either, I'm, I don't want to quote certain people uh, who work for certain museums, but uh, the density <laughs> of bone is exactly the same today as it was back in the ages of dinosaurs. So there's no, and we know that because we have bones and we can measure, we can, we, can, we right. measure this. We have the, right. we have the samples. We can measure the bone density. And, and because of these arguments, these guys have been forced to measure these densities because there are certain people out there who are insisting that, T-Rex walked and didn't run, not, 
and that oh, – Are you talking about Jim maybe, Baker? Well, you know, no one likes to insult anybody. anybody. Who's insulting they, they come, him? They've come, up with, they've come up with some interesting theories. For example, the, one of them, uh, my favorite, is that uh, teenage uh, T-Rexes brought food to daddy. <laughs> I think they would eat him. Uh, the other one was, no, what he is is a, he is a, uh, a creature that hides behind things, and as his prey comes out, he leaps on them. A little hard to find something as big as a T-Rex to hide behind, but there you go. Mm. That's another theory. I have one so, for you. Hang, hang on. I got one. Remember uh-huh. the big, 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 big pterosaur found in Big Bend, Texas a few years ago, bigger than a 747? Yeah. How did it fly under one gravity? In other words, bottom line, hard, you're, saying, you're saying that all the dinosaurs, the whole eras of dinosaurs could only have existed with huge, huge, multi-hundred ton animals if the gravity of the Earth was significantly smaller than it is now. How does this fit in the, in the growing Earth model? Well, it, 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 it's, it, it's like it becomes so obvious. Lay it out. I mean, Get it right when, on the head. When you, when you, when you have people in the, in the future, okay, who are looking back on this, they're going to look at something like that and shake their head very passionately and say, I can't believe that people believe this. I had a friend uh, who just died now who, does, um, who did the T-Rex in, uh, in Jurassic Park, the first one. Hmm? And uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Baker? Baker? Name. No, not Baker. Uh, okay. Anyway, he did the model. He was doing a – for Spielberg, he was doing a full T-Rex model. He felt he could do a full T-Rex model. Oh, I know the story. And, I can't remember his name either. Yeah. yeah and he made it, from, uh, made it from titanium, which is pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And, and then he set the thing in motion. When he set the thing in motion, it so twisted itself that it couldn't carry itself and all the titanium twisted up and he couldn't do it. So what he had to do was he had to uh, basically make the model in half. So he did the legs separately and then they'd be upper portion separately and they had leaves in the middle so that you could, you know, he could shoot the legs and then he could shoot the upper thing. The thing about that that's interesting is that uh, in the movie, in the first movie, the T-Rex was behind the, the two kids and whoever the adult was in the Jeep, and they were yelling at him, can't you drive this faster? And he says, he's mm-hmm. going 50 miles an hour now. Mm-hmm. And clearly the T-Rex was walking. <laughs> it's so <laughs> clear that the T-Rex was walking. It's like uh, incredible. In the uh, CGI, of, you mean? Yeah, right. Well, no, yeah. The, no, in the model that was made because he did it in two pieces. So it was clear oh, that he okay. was walking because you see the motion. He's walking. You can see what a run motion is because a run motion thrusts a leg forward. It lands on the leg. You can walk. You can only, when you walk, basically, you keep both feet. One foot has to be on the ground while you put the other one. You can't leap off of one foot and then go to the other unless you're running. And when you run, you have to go another distance okay. and you have to go faster. So Here's, to my do question. Here's my sure. question. We've got very bright paleontologists. How come nobody's figured out the simple mechanics that you can't have dinosaurs on an Earth of 1G now? Uh, they, you know, there's, a, there's lots of conversations, and they argue with each other. In fact, there's a, there's a video uh, from Discovery or one of those people where you have two of those guys arguing with, with each other that one, one says they can run and one says they can't run because it's impossible. And the answer to that, obviously, is it's impossible because you can't do it in 1G. It's ridiculous. 
It's just mm. not even possible. There's a physically impossible. And I'm telling you, I know a lot about anatomy. Those are running legs on T-Rex. There's a walking legs on sauropods, just like elephants. The legs lock, they go straight, they walk, just like an elephant. An elephant can't run. An elephant can only walk because he's too big to be able to run. So he walks very fast. He can walk as fast as 13 miles an hour, which is probably faster than you can run. He can catch you, bash your brains out simply by walking. A sauropod has to do the same thing. So if you go to the museum, you will see how his legs lock together. Not true with a T-Rex. Why do these guys think this? Well, they don't know enough about anatomy. I don't know what the hell is wrong with them. I cannot figure it out for the life of me because it's as clear to me as, as anything I've ever learned in my life as an artist. It's, it, and and there's a, this is one of those arguments that you can't have unless you accept the concept that there could be a growing one. With that off the table, then you come up with these re- incredibly stupid, ridiculous arguments that these guys have back but and Neil, forth. But Neil, isn't stuff. science supposed to be, as Asimov told me, Isaac told me decades ago, <clears throat> he said, science is a self-correcting process. We're looking for error. So, yes, but, yes, but what you have to do is you have to equate in time. It takes an amount of time. In the case of the sun, 1,500 years. In the case of this, it's going to take long. I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm intending it's going to take a shorter time. But it started with Sam Carey, and he had to die without being verified. I mean, he mm. stood up. He stood. In, he he stood up in front of a of a group of uh, people at the London Geological um, uh, whatever it is, and they invited him as a guest. And some asshole stood up and said bullshit very, very loud and just destroyed me. And, you know, I'm telling you, if I had been there, I'd have thrown that guy down the steps. <laughs> I need, you need people like this in the world. You need people. What kind of jerk is this? Guy was invited as a guest, you know, with something new to say. And this guy stands up and says, bullshit. I'd clock him. Well, all right. First of all, it was Stan Winston, I think you're thinking of. Yes, exactly. My, 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 my crack staff, Chris Bell, brilliant, actually found brilliant this. Guy. Yeah. You're yep, right. Yep. <clears throat> you might Number even find two, the story. Uh, he he does have the story. It's it's hmm, it's actually Kinty is going to put it up on the other side of midnight because we found sculpting sure. a full size dinosaur from his own mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a link in everything. It's actually in a blog. Right. He did a blog on this. Exactly true. Okay. Exactly true. All right, we've got about forty five minutes, give or take, with minus phone calls. By the way, if folks do want to reach us, me and uh, Neil. Uh, just call 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. Let me ask you a big picture question. It seems to me that if, if, if this idea were to take hold, physicists, science, politics, you know, government would all have to acknowledge that there's some extraordinary energy conversion going on inside every planet and reasonable moon. And that all well, what keeps, physics your, what is keeps wrong. your hot? I mean, something keeps your all hot. All geophysics is wrong. Energy yeah. production doesn't have to be from oil. Oh, we can tap into this through some technology, and suddenly oh. you've got geophysical energy, which is unlimited and does not pollute. In other words, we're talking about social transformation in the 50s. I think yeah. Sam was really trying to go uphill against a huge tide of inertia. I'll pull his name out of the mud and stick it up there and put it on a pedestal because he's the he's the guy that said this stuff. And you know how I feel about the rest of science? Too bad. Excuse me, you're wrong. 
and it's time to change. And, you know, what's the big deal? You know, what, what happens is the guys who are so stubborn that they can't, they can't look at common sense and logic, they die off and the other people study it and it becomes real and then they move on. It's, to me, it's just a natural process of uh, human beings. You know, nobody makes, nobody has ever made any money on betting how smart human beings are. <laughs> we're just not, we're just not you that sound like, smart. You sound like Mark Twain. Okay. Hey, I think Chris uh, has, a, has, a, has, a, has a question, a really interesting question. Sure, for you. sure, sure. Chris? Sure. Sure. Go for it. Hey, I was, it was from what you're talking about. I was. It sounded like that the bigger the magnetic field a planet has, that the more mass is created, so the planet grows larger. Um, no. Does that make sense? No. Or? The, the, no. The, the, the larger a planet grows, the bigger its magnetic field. It's the other way around. But the bigger it gets, okay. But the, where does the, the mass come from? Field. Mass is created. At the core of the okay, whatever okay. the planet here, is. How is it created? Here, here, here's my corollary it's created question. Created through pair production. Hang on, hang on. Does the pair production inside individual planets, moons, and stars mm-hmm. depend on their mass? Is it well, all you, the same for everybody, or does it? Is it a different rate? So bigger yeah, things it's, go it's, bigger, faster, faster, faster. In other words, <laughs> it's an asymptotic curve. It's not linear. The bigger the place gets the bigger it gets faster. You know, I, I think that's great for people to study in the future. Once we start accepting the theory and start talking about it, it's not really for me to get involved in all like the measurements and all the rest of it. Clearly, if you have a smaller planet, like there's a, there's a, a, a moon. I don't know if it's, Ensel, it's not Enceladus, it's another moon that's spewing, uh, spewing water vapor out of it. So clearly some of the uh, lighter stuff you know, to that, make is that easier, is easier that, to make. That is, that is Enceladus circling uh, Saturn. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So it's obviously making stuff and spewing it out, and it's doing it on a constant, ongoing basis. So you got some simple stuff. You have some fairly simple stuff on the moon. You know, it makes its atmosphere. Um, uh, Mars doesn't do such a good job because its magnetic field isn't very good, so it doesn't produce good stuff. I think, I think there's differences, but I think if you took uh, basically any planet that was the, generally the same size and generally the same position in its solar system and generally the same, they pretty much make the same stuff. You know, you make basalts and uh, uh, granite and silicates and other stuff and the hydrogen and oxygen. It's pretty much the same. There's a boring universe. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, let's make some new stuff, you know. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You're you're saying the work has to be done. You don't really know then whether the creation of mass is dependent on the initial mass to create. Huh? I don't know why. In other words, if, if, if I start out with a, with a row of planets, okay, big ones and small ones. My question is, will the big ones get bigger quicker than the small yes. ones because the rate okay. of creation good. Okay. is good. in the good. center? Good. 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 Okay. That's good. Okay. And the okay. next question is – Hold on. Hold on a second. The answer okay. is in Go several ahead. places, so let's do one at a time. You know that the growth of the universe is exponential. That is, it grows faster with time. That's what they learned. Now, I can say that the growth of the earth is exponential because – Two people, myself and um, Maxwell, a guy named Maxwell. Why can't I remember his first name? It's so insulting to do this. Maxwell. Uh, John Clark Maxwell? Project, uh, John Max, no, uh, Maxwell. Oh, you're, you're talking oh, no, about no, the guy no, no, who just wrote the new Maxwell. book. Yeah, yeah. Expanding. He wrote it on the Expander. Exactly. Um, he, he was a student of Sam Carey. So we both created a, an exponential curve 
starting with an early part of the pandemic. Dr. Going through James 100, 100. Maxwell. That's Dr. right. Dr. James Maxwell. 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 Yep. Right. Uh, so we're Who's also in Australia, well. Yes, who is yeah, Max, Dr. James Max right. Lowe. Uh, there's was, a, that's was, a, that's what, a, a group of uh, insurgents down there in Australia. You know, they ah. change the world. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, uh, we both projected a curve of the Earth, and our curve was pretty much the same. And the curve uh, gets exponentially larger. I don't think our curve is right uh, at the end, but it does go faster and faster. So that. 180 million years ago, the uh, the Earth the Earth was growing about the size of a fingernail. Uh, now it's um, about 22 inches a year. Uh, he says 22. Uh, he he gives a different figure. I say 22. Wait, inches. wait, 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 wait. You you know, know, you're talking. Knows, hang on, hang on, you know. hang on. You're talking sure, circumference. Sure. The sure. actual radial yeah. changes mm-hmm. about one inch mm-hmm. of radius increase now per year. No, I say 22 inches. This I say other guy is saying inches. one. Well, you know, there you go. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm right. I think I'm right. Well, where are the measurements from? Well, the measurements are really easy. You start start at a – whatever your number is 4.5 billion years ago, okay? It can Mm -hmm. be – let's say it started as a uh, planetesimal, okay, and it was a given size, um, the size of a moon. Or it started as, let's just say, the sun started as a planet of another solar system. Therefore, the Earth was a given size. Let's say a thousand miles around. Pick, you know, because this is speculation, and I don't get involved in speculation. So I'm just you pick a number, it's a thousand miles around. So you go from a thousand miles around to two, 180 million years ago to the size of all the continental plates being together, and then you mm-hmm. move it forward to now, and it becomes an exponential curve that you can plot out very easily. And that's what he did, and that's what I did, and we both came out with very similar curve. Now that means he, that he, he being Dr. Certain Max things Lowe. are low. Yeah, Max Low. Say Max Low. It's because you're always you one is willing is anxious to say Max Maxwell because of Maxwell, you know, but it's Max Low. Okay. Um, uh, so you have uh, all the planets growing exponentially larger. Now it does explain certain things. For example. We have uh, what is nearly a fact, and that is that Jupiter has become our meteorite umbrella. For Jupiter okay. to become our meteorite umbrella, it had to have grown quite a bit, quite a bit in size in the last several hundred million years, and certainly in the last billion years, because we've got meteor craters on on Mars, we've got meteor craters on on, on the Moon that are uh, of a tremendously large size. Well, now are the meteor craters on Mars and the moon in the growth areas are very small. You can barely see them. They're like little, little pocks, okay? So obviously, uh, Jupiter has grown quite substantially to have attracted all those meteorites. If you remember the uh, uh, the meteorites that came down to Jupiter and crashed into Jupiter, what are they? Uh, Shoemaker-Levy-9, um, Shoemaker-Levy, yeah. Now, people think that that was the end of that, but there have been more uh, more meteorites that have giant planetesimals that have crashed into Jupiter since then. So mm-hmm. it was absorbed. And an Australian those... found them on, on, on a live YouTube video. He's published them. And by the way, every one, of those, every one of those 12 pieces that broke apart would have destroyed all life on Earth. Oh, totally. They say. Totally. They say. So yep. obviously Jupiter has become – yet it was not a protector of the Earth early on or a protector of the moon or a protector of Mars because we can see the massive craters that got through 
massive meteorites that got through. And now in the small, in the areas that are spread areas on these planetesimals or moons, uh, they're very small craters. So obviously only the little tiny ones get through, the big ones get caught by Jupiter. So you, you're talking about a tr quite a tremendous growth in, in Jupiter. And obviously, mm. the, if you can extend it out to the other gas giants. Okay, so let what me did pause it look here. like two billion years ago? I don't know. Let me pause here and do a little housekeeping. Kinthea has been very sure. busy. All the things we've sure. been talking about, from Stan Winston to James mm -hmm. Max Lowe to the fish in the oceans, the fish in the sea, all those things that, are up. Are, well, she's, she's incredibly, um, shall we say, just incredible. Mm -hmm. So those are all posted now on the other side of midnight on Neil's page. So just go to the main page, go to the, the graphic, click on that, takes you to his page. Let me let me get to, to and oh, by the way, Chris is also helping here because he's finding finding okay. some stuff behind the scenes. Great. Let Great. me get back to to this question. Um, if I remember the question, um, if everything is growing, how everything come the Earth growing. only start? Well, every every major celestial body. All right. We forget fragments, chips and pieces. Where there's got to be a minimum size, all right? So those come of spalling off bigger bodies. If you have no idea. You have no idea what a great question you're about to ask. You have no idea. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Well, I, well, basically, it's two questions. One is, where is the original seed core to start an object growing to become a moon, right. a planet, a star, etc.? Number two. Why did this process of the expanding slash growing Earth with new matter created in the middle only seem to start 250 million years ago? <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Okay, that is a great question. Uh, such a wonderful question. Okay. Geologists agree that the granitic continental crust of the Earth which again is 40 miles thick at this point, began as a process of differentiation. That's how we got it. Molten granitic rock came up and undercoated the earth and some of it spewed out in volcanoes, but essentially it's a process of differentiation. Now we all remember differentiation from school. You put oil and water in a, in a glass and you shake it up and the oil goes to the top because the oil is lighter mm. than the water. Right. Yeah, it, there is one model which says one model says that the continents are kind of like pond scum, floating yeah. light okay. crust floating on the heavy work down below. Yeah, and that's why that's what made them forty miles thick. <laughs> no. Anyway, so the process of differentiation happens only with a liquid. It does not happen with a solid because a solid is a solid. So things aren't gonna you know the light stuff isn't gonna go to the top. Campbell, you have to turn no. it into a liquid. Right. Okay. So you can do that with uh, water, you can do it with liquids, or you can do it with something that you've melted and it becomes molten. Okay? So like under the crust of the – right, like a lava. So under the crust of the earth, the asthenosphere, which is the top of the, of the mantle, okay, is, has a particular nature, but there's a section of it that is, in fact, a, a molten. It's a liquid, Okay. Because it's a liquid, because it's a liquid, it differentiates. The lighter stuff goes to the top, but okay. the mantle is the mantle isn't liquid all the way through. It only goes down a certain distance. Okay, now that may have increased over time, but not a big distance. So what happens is, you have the 
different you have this sort of semi-differentiated crust of the earth made of crystals and other stuff you have a crust that's cool because of the you know, the space and the gases and everything then underneath it you have this molten liquid area which you can see that's under the ocean now okay which is molten therefore it's differentiating that means the lighter stuff is going to the top now the lighter stuff in two basic chunks of silicate you have granitic rock okay which is two point you might want to write it down 2.7 times the density of water okay and then you have basaltic rock which is 3.3 times the density of water oh isn't that so clever oh my god so those obviously very interesting okay so obviously basalt is heavier than granitic rock so the granitic rock is going to rise up in this molten material to undercoat the crust of the earth it also will and, spew up and volcanoes. float on top like yeah. float on it top will, like pond scum it well no it'll no the, forget pond scum it will flow out of volcanoes and turn into ash and turn into aerated uh, bubbled stuff which actually makes it quite light. So that you really don't count that because that makes the, your fertile valleys and all the rest of this stuff that you get from volcanoes. But it will That's also right. undercoat coat in layer after layer the crust of the earth. Okay. 250 million years ago. Okay. And you can kind of back engineer this. That area of molten rock ran out of granitic rock. There was no more granitic rock. Okay. Yet the earth was growing. And also before that, the land, uh, you can go to across the country in America in a plain and you can see the spreading of the land where you see ridges and then you see lowlands and then you see another ridge on the other side. That's also spreading of the land very much like in the deep oceans. Okay. So spreading was going on on the granitic continental crust ongoing for billions of years okay and that's what those ridges are and those flatlands between and the ridges on the other side that's what those are wait, wait, wait. i'm now totally neil neil stop i'm totally confused <sighs> because supposedly this process only began 250 million years ago you just talked about no. billions of years of spreading that's right that's right happens on the moon on mars you ought to look at my videos I got Mars, the moon, there's, there's a, two Mars videos, quite impressive. Anyway, so it's ongoing, okay, but before the granitic rock ran out, you just have spreading on the surface of granitic rock, on granitic rock, but we hadn't run out of granitic rock yet, the lighter granitic rock. 250 million years ago, the earth ran out of granitic rock. And so what happened in the area of Siberia is that area, because it didn't have any oceans to go into, erupt basalt, heavier basalt, because the earth was growing and had to erupt something and had to blow mm -hmm. something out. So it blew out basalt and superheated gases for an area nearly the size of the United States of America and destroyed nearly all life on earth. 98% of the life on Earth was destroyed by this eruption of heavier basalt. So this is Over the big time. Permian, Permian uh, right. uh, what do they That's call right. that? Uh, extinction. That's right. Yes. Huge so extinction. That basalt, 90, almost 99%. That basalt, so that basalt now 
that base, that's right, that basalt now had erupted to the surface because we had Earth had run out of granitic rock. So now we had basalt and superheated gases that destroyed all this life. Over a period of time, there were more traps. There's one in India. There's other traps. But essentially, as, right. So essentially, over time, cracks appeared in the granitic rock that went all the way down to the basalt. And the water on the land fell into those cracks, beginning your oceans. So now when the basalt came up, it didn't go up on top of the land. It went into the waters and got cooled and hardened so it could continue to spread, saving life on, on Earth from being mm. destroyed because the water was now falling into those cracks and those basalt cracks were spreading. But now it was no longer granitic rock. Now, especially about 180 million years ago, where you get the biggest rifting, now you have spreading oceans and you have life being saved and you have only basalt spreading, which is 3.3 times the density of water. That's why it spreads down two miles or more deeper than the crust of the earth. So it's an mm. ongoing process that happens on the moon, it happens on Mars, it happens on Earth, any rocky planet happens on Mercury. And, but on Earth, we transition from granitic rock to basalt. So now the only thing that rises up from that molten area is basalt because we really pretty much ran out of granitic rock to make our continents. So there are these continents that have gotten thicker, but there's no more, no more granitic continents. So if you were to argue <laughs> that, no, none of this happened, Neil, you're out of your mind, then you have to say, where are all the other continents? Mm. Two-thirds of the exactly. Earth's missing continental plate yep. is gone. Okay, hold Either up there. The bottom of the hour, sure. we have one last half hour to go. I'll give you the numbers when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, Neil Adams, and we're having, I think, an extraordinarily provocative conversation because this is not any small revolution if neil is right prescinding from sam carey then almost everything we think we know in science is wrong and it's been wrong for hundreds of years how can so many bright people be so wrong maybe because reality is so unimaginable unimaginable we'll get back to this we're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. My little angel climbs in. When the world comes down on me, I got a little angel setting me free. And welcome back on this Sunday night, one half hour to go. If you want to call the show, want to talk to Neil, 917, frog in my throat there, 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. And uh, in a week from last night, we're going to have Paul Davis talking about the MK Ultra stuff and LSD and mind control at good old Princeton. That's going to be remarkable because this is a side of Paul that I've uh, not really explored. I've known him for decades, and we've never really talked about this. So I'm going to learn right along with you next Saturday night. So back to Neil. Let me uh, bring up his mic so that we can all hear him. Um, you, 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 you explained adequately, I think, more than adequately, that in fact uh, the planets have been growing since they were born, these bodies, mm-hmm. celestial bodies. But what I don't still get is – I'm in the middle of empty space. There's nothing around, and I'm having pair production. Why do the pairs hang out together as opposed to they streaking don't. off into they interstellar don't. space? They How don't. do they we then get planets? What's the, what's they the streak off into interstellar space. How do the planets or how do the objects that become planets and stars, how do we get the nuclei to get stuff to hang, hang around around right. them? So the, quest, so the question is, okay – how do you make enough gravity in a particular place in the universe to hold the matter that's being created so that you get uh, hydrogen? Because basically all you need is hydrogen, right? Yep. You need to attract hydrogen. So you need to, uh, you, you need to make hydrogen. Okay, that's it. In order to make hydrogen, you need to make a proton. Okay, so the question is how do you make a proton? Ah, now, now hang on, hang on, hang on. Let us go back to the other side of midnight. Let me get rid of this screen. Go to item number two in Neil's section, building protons. Go yeah. Ahead. So what do we have? What, uh, what elements do we have to make a proton? We have electrons and we have positrons. Okay. Then we have pair, uh, prime matter. We have all these in-facing fields, and the universe is filled with them. How did the universe get filled with them? I do not know. I am not are you talking about the, Are you talking about the zero-point field, the torsion field? No, I'm talking about in-facing energy uh, electromagnetic fields, the ones that you ha- they share the energy with the electron and the positron. I can tell you, I can, okay. I can give you an, an imagination on how it might have happened, but I think it's just speculation. So well, I really, just speculate. You know, Come on. We're, we're, we're okay. almost I, I, 2.30 in the morning. Some, some, I, I speculate spin did it. I speculate spin oh. of the universe in some, in some way pulled apart on the universe and forced Planck-sized bubbles uh, into the universe. 
And these bubbles now. Hang on, hang on. When, 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 when yes, you say Planck-sized bubbles, we got to tell people what the Planck-sized bubble is. Well, you know, I, you know, Planck. I, I think Planck, from that point of view, is is uh, could be variable. So I don't really know, and I don't want to get involved in it because again, we're getting into speculation. All I'm saying is, bubbles are pulled into the universe. In other words, you have a universe that's whatever it's made of this smooth uh, uh, material that's neither negative or positive gets pulled, okay, and bubbles appear, and on you the outside of the bubble you have, no, you I don't think so, they get pulled. I mean, if I, it's sort of like making a bubble in the water, if you're able to pull the water hard enough, you can kind of make a make a bubble into the water. You Well, differentiation you, you, you doesn't have to appear. be chemical, it, 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 it can be physical, it can be uh, geometric. See, maybe I didn't, I shouldn't have gotten into this, but all I'm saying is that if you pull on the, on, on space and you make it less than space, make it less than it is. You make a bubble, and the outer edge of the bubble is a is a non is a uh, a non-edged bubble. Okay, and the inside is a point particle that has no dimension. So neither one of those have any dimension, but one is the core of the particle with a field going outward to the edge of the bubble because the outside is being pulled away. That's why it's negative. The in the core is pulling inward. That's why it's positive. So you have positive force pulling inward. You have a negative force pulling the bubble outward. That's the electron. Okay. In the middle is the positron, which is positive, which is an in pulling force. The electron is an out pulling force. And that's where all magnetic force and gravity and all the rest of those come together. That's all it is. Just that in pulling and out pulling. Okay. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. So you have okay. that. Now that, now that spreads out through the universe because you can't, you can't have one large one and one small one. So they all have to be the same size. So the universe is filled with these in facing fields. Okay. And so what you have to do is you have to have energy, pop that core out and that becomes your positron. So let us say that this is true because, you know, I'm not asking you to say that it's true. I'm saying just for the sake of the conversation, <laughs> say it's true. Okay. So now you have an electron and a positron. You've made an electron and a positron. The, which one, which one of those two is going to attract one of those particles, one of those fields? Okay. You got an electron, you got a positron. Which one is going to attract one of those fields? Okay, the field, okay, let's remember, the field has the electron on the outside, positron mm -hmm. on the inside. So I will give you the answer. The answer is the positron will attract one of those fields because the positron is positive and the outside of that field is negative. So the positive positron will attract the electron on the outside of that field. And as it comes closer, it has to stop because the positron feels the positron on the inside of that field and halts the progress. Okay. So it holds it in stasis. Okay. Holds it. Now it can't at come a any certain, closer. At a, at, a, at a certain distance. At a certain distance. So now what you get is a buildup. Hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got to sure, follow sure. this carefully. Sure. We've got three particles. We've got, mm -hmm. you know, the electron positron shell thingy, and then we've got a naked, you know, what? Electron or positron? Which we have outside. a positron, we got an electron, and now we have a prime matter particle called a prime matter particle, which is just a in facing field. Ah, okay. So your positron is going to attract that in facing field because then because that in facing field has an electron on the outside. 
So the electron will not attract it. An electron will never attract it. Right. The electron will float by itself, but the positron will attract it. And it will continue to attract it and others to coat itself with a cube because it's so small. Okay. It's not going to make a sphere. It's going to make a cube. Okay. Of five layers. Five layers. The math says that that's 1,000 particles, 1,000 particles, including the positron, 1,000 particles. You want to write that down? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, 1,000. Okay, 1,000. You've, you've got a cube with 1,000 balls around it. Which, by the way, is two entwined te- tetrahedrons. Go ahead. Maybe. That's okay. So now what happens is because the field will only extend out a certain distance, it doesn't extend out to the corners of the cube, okay, to the corners of the cube. So that's, those corners are weak. So slough off 10 particles. In other words, they never form on it because basically it becomes then a very good geometric form if you slough off the corners. So you're taking off 10 particles from eight corners. That's 80 particles, so now you're taking 80 particles away from your 1,000 because they don't adhere, okay? So that gives you uh, 920, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, 920. So you got 920 particles around it. The middle one being a positron, okay, Isn't, doesn't really count, but you can count it. I mean, for the, for the sake of the, uh, the numbers. But we know that each one of these 920 particles, okay, really 919, we'll call it 919 because there's a positron in there, 919. Each one of those has an electron and a positron. So they count as two particles, right? So you're just going to double that number, 919. Okay, 9 and 9 is 18. Uh, 3... Three is eighteen, so you come out with uh, one thousand eight hundred and thirty-eight. Oh my God, that's an incredibly yes. important oh, number. Oh my oh, God, yes. oh, my. Neil. oh my God, holy cow, oh, my God. holy! All right, tell holy them why shit. it's really cool. Yes, because that's a proton. It's, it's that is a proton. The proton is one thousand eight hundred thirty-eight yes. times the mass There's of no the electron. There's no such thing as a quark, and no one knows why. You know, even, right. even Feynman had no idea why the proton is 1,838 times more massive than the electron. That's right. That's and he got, right. what, two Nobel Prizes or something? This is so cool. And, of course, cool. if you, this, and of course, this if is you a, add, this if you is, add you gotta, uh, Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. People need to appreciate right. how beautifully elegant this idea or these sets of ideas uh, are. Uh, uh, okay. Appreciate the time 30 years. You think you do this for less than 30 years? It's a big deal. Yeah, but you've here. been called. You were called by Wire to Genius. Come on, where where you been? Uh, <laughs> that that two fifty gets me on the subway. Anyway, so you got now add an electron to that. Activate the positron. You get one thousand eight hundred forty. That's a neutron. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. I mean, yes. this really is wow. Oh yeah. This is super cool stuff. The geometry works perfectly. You take 10 particles off the corners of eight of those things, then the geometry works perfectly. And that's how a field would end. Wow. I'm just saying. So ultimately, it's the geometry, stupid. 
you know, Clinton, well, it was the economy. It's the geometry. Like I've been saying for yeah. a few decades in various places. Okay, let's interrupt here. I want to have Kintia ask a question, and if Keith has any because he's so techy, I'm sure he's bubbling with questions. Guys, have at it. Jaws hanging open? Jaws are hanging open. No, I'm just just like you're thinking like, ah, ask a question. My whole mind is being blown apart. You know, I want to come back. No, I love it. I absolutely love it. I want to come back to where Richard was saying, so you start with nothing, like the universe is nothing. I personally can't imagine that there was nothing ever nothing. Seems to me there's always been a field. And I can't. And I, and as I said, as I said earlier, you, you sort of have to understand. I only deal with facts. Okay, I'm I'm not God. I don't, you know, I don't any know any of that stuff. In the end, it's it gets too fuzzy. The further you look, the further in the distance it becomes. So I I really don't speculate on that. I I just look at where these happen. You just right now you've got a piece of if you're lucky you got a piece of paper in front of you that says 1,838 in this perfect geometric form. Nobody's ever done that. In the history of I mankind, no, they've well, never done it. And if you did it, they may have done it, but did they it, didn't get it published and no, didn't get noticed. Whatever, whatever. I, you know, I'm not interested in all that. I'm interested in advancing science. I'm not interested in being told that I'm a genius or any of that crap. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm just interested in sharing ideas and moving this stuff forward. Uh, everything about this works. Um, uh, there's so if you take apart every piece, okay. The reason that the reason that we began this exploration, this whole exploration began, was because remember I said that they couldn't find any fish fossils older than seventy million years old. Yep. They really still haven't. They really still mm. haven't. It took a long time for fish to evolve to live in the ocean. That means there were no oceans. That meant there was no salt in the oceans. That meant that fish were freshwater fish. No, this all connects. That's, you know. It all connects. connects. The Everything connects. Kind of no matter where you go, okay. Re- and and the more the re- the more the recent discoveries are found by science, the more they verify this. They have recently discovered, within the last ten years, that the southern coast of Alaska matches the the uh, uh, western coast of California. That mm-hmm. means Alaska was folded down to California. And well, the mainstream can't handle that. Yeah, that's right. And Kamchatka has plucked itself out of the area of Siberia, and you can see how it plucked itself out. That meant that those two things folded open as gates as the continents pulled apart, and mm. Australia went down. There's and so the much. There's no place. There's no place that you go. If believe me, you could throw out any question at me, and there's facts that are there. If there's not facts, I will tell you. Okay, I'm I'm going to say I don't know. Because I don't know. There's things I don't know, but I do know an awful lot of facts. And there's so many of these things that they're throwing to us as facts that really are just theories. Like even the Pangea theory. It's called the Pangea theory because it's a theory. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, it's okay. yes. Right. It's a theory. It's the. It's I the think Philippine Sam Island Carey. Theory. I think Sam Carey is smiling. Oh, oh, I, hope I, think he's smiling. I hope he okay. is. I want Kintia, do you have any? Do you have anything else? I, I want to get Keith in here. Well, I just wanted to uh, just make a note that on the website I put the contrast of 
uh, point number 14, which is the traditional view of Pangea, and Neil's view of Pangea, which is link number one. Mm. So if, if people are interested in seeing the difference, it's huge. <laughs> it's yeah. really magnificent. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Keith, you're up at that. Uh, my science teacher in uh, uh, middle school said, everything you've been taught is wrong. And it made me stop and think, well, everything that I know has been taught to me by somebody. And where they get their information was, it was from someone else. And there was a flat earth theory at yeah. one point. It seemed to it wasn't, fit fine with the it universe. It wasn't for very long. It wasn't for very long. I got to tell you, this flat earth is Yeah, but it's come back. Have you seen and, and, and no, it's, 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 it's come, on the internet? It comes back with silliness, and you really just have to ignore that. It's like ignoring Donald Trump. You sort of have to put that aside. <laughs> no offense for you Donald Trump fans, but screw it. And yeah, the, the but truth either is, one the of them truth is that, but that, that's but that you see that's the you're right that's the way science works. I mean, nobody's ever right forever. You know, everything has to be shot down because we're all in a search to try to find out. Well, how things you know, work. one of you know Hoagland's first law: all science is approximate. The problem is the mainstream gives it to us like it's you know descended from you know Mount Sinai. Yep, and 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 the trouble is, and my trouble is. That the more I investigated this, the more things I found to be theories and not mm. backed up by facts. And it's, it's over and over. And, and what you see is you see people to support this dumb theory. They come up with another theory. Then they come up with an – it's the dinosaur thing. They Epicycles. keep on coming up with other Epicycles. dumb theories to explain okay. stuff. Um, that Keith, can't Keith, be explained I, without I, I, dumb. I have two I have two huge th uh, ideas I want to get across before we get to the end of the show. We got less than ten minutes left. Got anything else? No, I'm fine. Okay, I want to go back to energy. Back in the sure. 1960s, a guy I forget his name, uh, flying a Learjet, put instruments, an infrared telescope, and a Learjet, took it up to 50,000 feet, measured the infrared energy radiating from Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and found mm -hmm. to his shock that those planets are all radiating except for Uranus, which is kind of dicey. The, the other three planets are radiating up three times more energy out, Neil, than they're getting from the sun, which raises well, the question. Is well, the heat in I, the center of Venus, the center of the Earth, the center of the moon measured by Apollo, is the heat all coming from the create or the transformation of matter, you know, energy into matter in the centers of these planets? Duh. And is that Duh, why they're hot? No, 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 because what do you want me to say? If you say yes, then the Jupiter's next Jupiter's going to become a sun. I mean, Jupiter's going to become hang a sun. On, We're going to become a sun. The Earth next, is going to become a sun. We, we, we have to look for real estate to move to. Yes, okay, so. No, that'll be if a If that's true. You know, it reminds, me of, it reminds me of Archie Comics, where the I'm, moose I can't is going with a, with a sad, long face, and Archie turns to Moose, and he says, Moose, why are you so sad? And Moose says, because Miss Grundy said that the Earth is going to end in, in, in five, billion year, uh, 5 billion years. And then Archie says, she didn't say 5 billion years. She said 5 trillion years. And Moose says, oh, oh that's different. <laughs> I was worried. Okay, next question then. If, if this is right and it just, it just feels right and those number synchronicities are really cool – then why do the mainstream guys keep saying that the energy inside the Earth is from radioactive decay of uranium, thorium, potassium, et cetera? 
How, do, how are their numbers the incredibly wrong? Because that's the only explanation they can come up with. I mean, it, you have this uh, this problem, and the problem is that we should not have uh, helium on Earth, and yet we have helium on Earth. Well, we don't have a lot. So we have they very, say, really tiny so they, well, we have tiny amounts, and it's trapped in caves, and we're able to fill our balloons with it. That helium is coming from is coming from the core of the Earth that's transferring uh, hydrogen into helium, not the breakdown of, of higher elements, because that would have happened a long time ago. And so they have to have a reason. Where do we get helium? Where do we get the heat? You have to, he, he, because it's uh, – but, you know, if you go to a place on Earth where there's a, a whole lot of uranium, it's not very hot. <laughs> it's just not very hot. It's just BS. We know where he comes from. We got a sun to tell us. And we have plan- other planets that are super, super sized, and there's a lot of heat coming from them. Oh, okay. And, and so, there's all right. No, and there's no reason question. to, to, to not suppose that there isn't a, a thing going on inside, a nascent sun going inside of the Earth. It, it's all okay. the same. In your model, then, if we mm-hmm. were to be able to bore magically through the Earth from the cr- crust down to the core, would it have layers of higher and higher temperature rock, or is there a point where there's a huge cavity inside, and there's this super hot plasma of created matter, newly born, that's seething like an internal sun in the center of every planet? And I moon? think I think I think I think the outer core is plasma, but plasma is really not that damn different than molten iron. In that, plasma is a, another form of matter. It just disassociated. So mm-hmm. here's a chunk of plasma. You know, you put it in a bottle here, and it blows up the house. It's very, very dense plasma through which a magnetic field. In other words, anybody anybody who knows anything about the outer core of Earth, they know it has to have a moving either a super dense gas or a liquid for the magnetic field of the Earth to go through. Okay, because the, mm-hmm. it does go through and comes out the other side. So we know oh, there it is. So there, you have two choices. One of the choices not made by the scientific community, and that is a super dense plasma. Uh, they say it's molten iron. Well, well, there are guys the out there. The writing. temperature, the temperature of that, the temperature of that, they, they've they've speculated and they've got given some proof. They say it's between six thousand degrees Fahrenheit and nine thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Well. Iron turns into a vapor at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So if it did turn into a vapor, it would then become a plasma. But you're, you're so forgetting where, where's the argument? Huh? Remember the, the uh, laboratory uh, no. anvil measurements actually squeezing solid stuff together under diamond anvils and heating it with lasers. And they're getting temperatures and pressures equivalent to the center of the earth. And the iron is solid crystal. It's not a gas. It, you get them close enough, they become a solid, even at incredible high and I, and I hear, And I hear these things all the time, and they're never open to discussion. So I will open this to discussion. There is a difference between pressure and gravity. Okay, Gravity makes pressure, but pressure can be alleviated if you have something very dense. For example, let's say you're driving uh, on a road that goes through a mountain. You do not feel the weight of the mountain because the density of the rock is holding the weight of the mountain off of you. So you just drive through. You don't even feel it. 
Logically, you would say, well, yeah, in a tunnel. So logically, you would say, well, I'm, you can't drive through a mountain. You're going to feel the weight of the mountain on, on you. No, you don't. You don't feel it because the structure of the mountain is holding, uh, the way it's done, is holding the pressure so that you don't feel it. So now you have a planet, and the planet is the shape of a ball, okay? And you have the mantle, which is solid. So the solid mantle retains the pressure. So you don't really know scientifically how much pressure is down there. If it were gas or if it were liquid, you'd know, but it's not. It's a solid. So being a solid and it's a sphere, it is the perfect pressure holder. Nothing could hold pressure better than a sphere. An arch except, is a continuous except the arch. New data, the new published data in the papers that I talked about a few minutes ago say that the center, the solid core of the earth is not a sphere. It is a cubical iron-nickel combination, and the sound waves, the seismic waves, go different velocities and depending I, and on I the hear, orientation and I, of and the I crystal. Hear, and I, and it's I a hear super, that. super crystal. And I hear it's, that. It's, okay. it's empirical measured data fitted to a and model, I, just like you, what you've been doing. And I hear that, okay, but I can tell you this. Let's just say I have a crystal that is built exactly what the way you're saying okay so i take that crystal mm -hmm. and let's say it's a, a square a cube okay think now of I iron pyrite crystal. crystals nice little okay. cubic and now crystals. i take and now i take my little hammer and and chisel and i chisel it so it becomes the shape of a ball all right. the crystal structure stays the same within it but it is now the shape of a ball okay okay, okay. that's the answer so no, you're right. You're right. That, that's the answer because it right. still will act now, like it's a, a cube, now, but it will not go be a cube except within the crystal. Right. Let's go past that. What is solid hydrogen if not a crystal? Supposedly. Mm. By the way, did you see that experiment at Harvard a few months ago where they reported they'd produce solid hydrogen with these anvils, lasers, and then like it that, mysteriously like vanished? I didn't see the vanish part. I didn't hear the vanish part, but that's cool, isn't it? That is so cool. Well, well when they release they, the pressure, they, it apparently yeah. goes away. It goes back to a gas. Well, there you go. Now, if there it didn't, go. if it stayed, if it stayed so under cubical, pressure, under pressure, it stays a solid. But then you take the pressure away. It doesn't. Well, there's some ambiguity in the report, so we still don't know whether it does or it doesn't. There's been and a rumor when, that when someone actually stole the experiment. They stole the sample. Yeah. When there's that's ambiguity, why it disappeared. I kind of, when there's ambiguity, I kind of stay away until it becomes fact. The truth of the matter is that I really like facts. I just love facts. They're like a, an ermine. You know, you can pick yeah, them, and they're nice, and they but, but, can but, depend you know, on that, them. Actually, we're, we're down to the last 90 seconds of the show. Look, sure. let me thank you sure. immensely. This has been so incredibly illuminating, educational, and entertaining. So let me ask you this while you're on the show. Will you come back and talk about comics and super movies and all that? Sometime? Oh, oh, no. You find that boring? Oh, yes, really. For, to have a conversation, okay. I, I can talk to comic book fans about that. And I'd rather talk about science than Okay. Had to ask. What, okay. One of the things you might want to do, what you might want to do is, is assemble questions. So, you know, let anybody assemble questions because it deserves to be shot at. I don't think it'll yep. be shot down, but it deserves to be shot at. Okay, let me let me thank my guest Neil Neil Adams. We've had an extraordinary morning. Thank you, Neil. 
And thanks to her wife, Marilyn, who gave all this great stuff, sent it to us, and Katia was able to organize it. So next week will be Paul David's, and on Sunday night, I don't know yet, because I'm kind of keeping things open, because you never know now what could happen. So until next week, same time, same bad channel, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.